0: This is Jocko Podcast number 352 with me, Jocko Willink. I feel certain I am going mad again. I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times. I shan't recover this time. I begin to hear voices and I can't concentrate. So I am doing what seems the best thing to do. You have given me the greatest possible happiness You have been in every way all that anyone could be I don't think two people could have been happier till this terrible disease came I can't fight any longer I know that I am spoiling your life that without me you could work and you will I know you see I can't even write this properly I can't read what I want to say is that I owe all the happiness of my life to you you've been entirely patient with me and incredibly good I want to say that everybody knows it if anybody could have saved me it would have been you everything has gone from me but the certainty of your goodness I can't go on spoiling your life any longer And that right there is the final work of the English writer Virginia Woolf it was a suicide note that she left to her husband Leonard Virginia Woolf was born into an affluent family she was well well cared for as a child she was homeschooled in English and Victorian literature from a young age she attended the ladies Department of King's College in London she was successful by any measure And she wrote a bunch of successful novels Uh, she authored more than 500 essays and reviews she had friends and family and a long seemingly happy marriage and yet throughout her life with even with all those opportunities and advantages and benefits and privilege that she had she Suffered from mental health issues. She had mood swings and depression and manic excitement and psychotic episodes And she attempted suicide twice Before she was successful in killing herself in 1941. So How does that happen? What is going on there? And and psychiatrists today, they hypothesized that she had a mental health problem, in particular, likely bipolar disorder, which used to be called manic depression. And we've talked about mental health on this podcast. We've talked about mental health issues facing veterans. We've covered some tragic, horrible suicides. Including Chad Wilkinson, Joe Price, Charles White Whittlesley, Lewis Puller Jr. We've also talked about non military suicides. We talked about Iris Chang. Iris Chang, who was the author of the best selling book, New York Times best selling book, The Rape of Nanking. And she had a nervous breakdown in August of 2004. And. Was placed on a wide variety of prescription medication but over time the medications only seemed to amplify her issues and she was diagnosed with reactive psychosis and put on even more medication and on November 8th 2004 she wrote when you believe you have a future you think in terms of generations and years when you do not you just live by the day But by the minute it's far better that you remember me as I was in my heyday as a best-selling author each breath is becoming difficult for me to take the anxiety can be compared to drowning in an open sea I know my actions I know that my actions will transfer some of this pain to others indeed to those who love me the most please forgive me and the next day, November 9th, 2004, she killed herself with a pistol. So these are topics that we've certainly addressed. We've talked about them initially, really, with Jordan Peterson. And focused, them, focused on them in, in the most recent podcast, the last podcast we did, 251, with Marcus and Amber Capone. But it's an area you know, it's an area that I still lack even basic understanding of what mental health disorders are, where they come from, what we can do to prevent them or overcome them in some way. Luckily, today we have some experts from that field Dr. Carlin Pleasance and Megan Harrison. Dr. Pleasance is a clinical psychologist who specializes in adult and adolescent psychotherapy. She's also the Chief Clinical Advisor and a managing partner at a new treatment center in Scottsdale, Arizona And Megan Harrison holds a master's degree in marriage and family therapy with significant experience working with families affected by transgenerational trauma and mental illness And Megan is the CEO and managing partner at a new treatment center in Scottsdale so um, Thank you both for joining us
1: thanks for having us yes, thank you
2: for yeah it's having us.
0: it's great to meet you um you know I mentioned that sort of my my introduction to psychology I would say was having uh dr. Jordan Peterson on this podcast and and that's when i I realized I just didn't understand at all what was going on and what what it meant to have a mental health issue and I realized when he was on the podcast, as, we, as he was talking through some of the problems that people have, I realized that the mind well, this is my simple caveman way of translating what he was saying was that your mind is like a car. And sometimes the car breaks down, or sometimes there's, you know, you blow a gasket or your oil is low. And when that happens, you take it into a mechanic and the mechanic mechanic diagnoses what the problem is, oh, you blew a gasket, here's what we need to do to fix it. And so I realized that in many ways the mind can do that too. You can blow up a gasket and there's people, psychologists or therapists, that can diagnose what the problem is and have methodologies and protocols to get those things fixed. So I, I, again, in my caveman brain realized that psychologists and therapists are like mind mechanics that have seen, that's what That's what triggered it for me, that's what triggered that thought, was he was telling me about, oh, I'd see this case, this type of case, you know, he'd see it again and he'd see it again and he'd see it again and, and you develop a protocol on how to deal with it. Just like, oh, your car's making this noise, oh, okay, here's what the problem is. And you see that over and over again, you develop a protocol. So you two welcome and you two are mind mechanics <laughs> as far as I can tell. Um, let, let's talk about how you guys got here, just a little bit of background just so we, we get familiar with you. So let's start with you. Carlin. Um, where'd you grow up? Well, how'd you end up in this scenario that you're in sitting here right now?
1: Okay, let's see. Well, I grew up in the Bay Area, California. And one of the things I think is really funny about my story is I didn't understand how I got here until much, much later, looking back and trying to figure it out. For a very long time, I was, I was one of those folks when people would say, so why did, why did you go into psychology? Why did you come, become a psychologist? I would say things like, oh, I just like helping people, mm-hmm. I'm a good listener, I'm interested in how the mind works, which are, are true things. But, really going back and taking a more in-depth look uh, at my journey, it started when I was a kid. You know, I had some pretty serious physical limitations and physical illnesses that kept me out of school for a long time. I did not take a single PE class my entire scholastic career. didn't get to participate the same way as other kids did, was uh, missed a lot of things, was absent a lot of the time. And I remember being really young and thinking, like, is this it? Like is this it? Can, can, can there be some other way of being, some other way of living because it's you know it was lonely. and, and as a kid, f- like that, the sense of feeling different, like I don't really belong. And How old other,
0: were you when these health issues started? Was this like I was everything? diagnosed
1: when I was two. Too Jeez. with like really severe respiratory um, and lung problems, and back then, I mean we're talking early '70s, right? Like treatment was not as it is now. People didn't understand. I mean, my mom talks about how I was sick a, as a an infant, and it took two years for a doctor to say, "Oh, I I think I know what she has." Talk about a mechanic, right? <laughs> She's taken me lots of lots of me- mechanics over the years. Um, and you know treatments weren't as advanced as they are now so growing up all through you know elementary school junior high high school feeling very separate and different and not included and knowing that people you know thought I was kind of weird how come you how come you don't come to all the things how come you don't take pe how come you sit in all recess when we all go outside right which on one hand doesn't sound i mean whatever it's the plight of a kid But when I really look back and think about it, it was that sense of feeling alone and really misunderstood and not included in things and wondering, like, there's got to be more. Like, this can't be it. This just cannot be it for for me, for people. So early on, I remember thinking when I grow up, like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be somebody who helps, basically helps people like me. Again, in a young brain thinking, well, if I feel like this, probably everybody feels like this. And I don't want people to feel like this, so maybe I'll help kids or I'll help people with respiratory problems or I'll help people with medical illnesses. And it just kind of developed that way, this idea of wanting to, I don't know, in some way help ease the suffering that other people experience and and make sense of, of what was going on. Now, again, I don't remember it like this at the time. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I just wanted to help
0: people. So did you apply yourself Mm -hmm. at school? Were you like, I need to get straight A's so I can be a doctor?
1: I was like, yeah, so overachieved. I mean, for for what I couldn't (laughs) do over here, I made up for it way Uh, over here. So lots of good grades, lots of degrees, lots of academic awards. Did you you Mm -hmm. go to
0: school with the intent of becoming a doctor? At what point did you think psychology was the... The place to go
1: for a while i was gonna i wanted to go into medical medical doctor and then when i learned that you have to take a class called anatomy <laughs> and look at bodies i thought yeah this might not be for me um, like you're squeam- squeamish this is totally squeamish so i'm oh. like yeah i don't know if that's then going to work out for me very well to go that direction um but it, it also again it the the insight of this came through hindsight is i was so curious about really the, the mental part of it, right? The experience of feeling isolated and disconnected and how that left you feeling, or me, feeling um, like lonely and depressed and kind of like wanting more, right? So I got a little a little bit more curious in the like psychological department of what happens for people who have an illness, what happens for people who Feel separate and different from everybody else who are left out, who are bullied. Like what what happens psychologically? So I, I definitely made a turn along the way. And was that was
0: that in college?
1: Um, I would say maybe high schoolish, going into college. Um, just you know, kind of a fascination with um, well, how the mind works, and and and. L- you know, in some ways, unlike um, going to a mechanic, a lot of the psychological experiences that a person might have in reaction or relation to all of these different events, you don't see them. Like, you know, we go into a doctor and take, take a listen to your head and go, oh, I, I, I recognize that clicking. I know exactly what to do. There, there are these kind of invisible, unseen experiences that make it a little bit more challenging to, to figure out or understand what exactly is going on. Um, so that curiosity, I just remember high school, probably going into college, just curious, like how does this work, like why do why do I feel this way? But this person I met also had an illness when she was young, and she seems to be okay. Like why did I suffer, or why was I okay over here, but this guy couldn't do grades, you know? Mm-hmm. Do so so this kind of curiosity about how the mind influences the experiences. And um, I remember sitting in a, I was probably getting close to getting my first degree and uh, in a um, kind of a pathology class, kind of a mental illness, a class on mental illness and the pathology of illness. Um, the professor said, how many, show of hands, how many in here believe that you're in here to help people? You just wanna do good in the world. You know, me, the good student, me, <laughs> me, um, at, along with most of the other class. And he's like, okay, how many of you in here Think that you have chosen this field or chosen this uh, part of the field because you've got your own stuff you might need to work out. <laughs> Everyone's like, not not, not me. me, not me, not not a hand or maybe like what, half hand. Um, and by the end of that class, whew, it was the reverse. Everybody was like, "Yep, I've got my own stuff. I need to work out. That's partly why I'm here." Right. So that started the. Um, I think the kind of budding awareness that this isn't just about, for me, it wasn't just about helping people and being a good listener, but it was about understanding myself and hopefully through the process, being able to take that experience and help other people, whether that's not feel so alone or understand that there are options available or that this isn't kind of the fate of your life. because you have this illness or this experience. So yeah, I definitely have swung the, 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 from here, like I'm, I'm just really altruistic <laughs> all the way over here to, you no, know, that life is hard sometimes, life is really hard. And when you factor in, like my experience growing up with an illness, also growing up in a family where there were a lot of issues, and not just in my immediate family, but generational. I mean, you and I, Megan, have talked about this, have, trauma and addiction and loss and wartime, like you, you, you kind of inherit a little bit of that along the way. So my curiosity over time, you know, expanded beyond just my own experience. But how does this happen in families? How does this happen through generations? How do you find, we had a, a client we saw at the treatment center for a long time who had schizophrenia, two siblings, a sister who did not have schizophrenia, a brother who did. Parents were really, really lovely, great people, did not seem to have a lot of stuff going on, but the dad's brother... The dad had three brothers. He was one of four. All three of them had schizophrenia. So this idea, right, of like, okay, some of this is passing down through generations, not just at a like a genetic level, but what you're exposed to and what you're seeing and what you're experiencing and what you're witnessing. Um, so the... Again, for me, the curiosity and the, the interest was about how do these things happen? How do they go from here to here to here to here? And what can we do to shift that so people aren't just kind of living out this emotional inheritance mm-hmm. or this tr- traumatic inheritance, depending on what was going on in the family? How do you break that chain? How do you do something different? How do you set your own life up to go in a different Trajectory than maybe how it's been going, and then your kids and their kids and their kids. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah, it makes sense that, uh, mm-hmm. like if you were going to get a, like a personal trainer because you want to get in shape, it would be kind of if you saw that that personal trainer had gone through some sort of transition themselves, you go, Oh, okay, this person kind of knows what mm-hmm. I've been through. So, you kind of got that vibe going. I mm-hmm. can say vibe a vibe. lot, so you gotta forget. I,
1: I about do too, that. it's okay. Uh,
0: my the <laughs> you kind of have that vibe. So, what degrees did you end up with? What What'd you end up with? You said you went, got like degree upon degree. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what'd you end so up with? So I
1: got a bachelor's degree in psychology, which unfortunately in our field nowadays that doesn't mean a whole lot other than you went to school for a few years and learned a bunch of things about the brain. Um, got my master's in counseling, uh, also in California, and then got my doctorate in clinical psychology down here in San Diego.
0: Got so, it. Hmm. All right. Uh, Megan yes. let's let's talk about you where where'd you grow up how'd you end up here
2: sure uh, feels like a big question I uh, I grew up in southern Wisconsin really small town beautiful there um, not much to do in that area you're probably fishing where would your parents hunting. <laughs> uh, my dad owned a chain of uh, grocery stores um, and my mom worked uh, just cleaning houses and um, working for my uncle's scrap metal business, whatever we could do. Um, and my dad that I'm speaking to came later on in life as well with like the chain of grocery stores. So the first part of my life was just me and mom. Um, and so she taught me definitely hard work, but there wasn't much to do where I grew up. You were bowling, Curling, fishing, hunting, or going to the bar. That was about it. Um,
0: Curling? Yeah. Curling just made the podcast. We're 352 (laughs) podcasts deep and we just got into curling.
2: It's a big deal in Wisconsin, let me tell you. Um, It's very cold for about eight months out of the year. So Um, yeah, I mean, my story, I I was born into a family system that had definitely been impacted by just generations of trauma. You know abuse addiction uh, mental health issues on the very severe end and um you know i you know similar to what carlin is saying i don't know that like sitting here right now like the only intentionality in that for me and coming into this therapy world was just this idea that through life um every step i took forward in terms of overcoming uh, just brought me further into the life that i envisioned for myself and it and that was sort of my intention in that way but i knew growing up in that environment that. There was no way I was going to be able to do something different for myself or do something different for the family I wanted to have if I stayed there. And so from a very young age, I sort of started my path towards independence. I started working at a very young age. Um, The military sort of came into my life as this idea of, like, here's an opportunity to go somewhere, to do something. I actually was finishing some high school stuff at a community college um, and uh, was— watching the September 11th occurrences in 2001 and I just remember looking at the screen and being like oh this is this is this is what I'm going to do. I had entertained the military for a period of time and I had thought maybe this was my opportunity but it was in that moment that I was like okay like this I feel a sense of purpose like drawn to something and in the environment that I grew up in I kind of always knew that I wanted something different for myself but I did I lacked a lot of direction and people in my life to kind of help me guide in that way. Education wasn't particularly valued or seen as like a possibility. And at that point in my life, I hadn't had enough experiences other than just like surviving in a lot of ways to um, see see that as possible for myself, to see ready to like go to school and do that route. And so the military just felt like, like, okay, this is this is what I'm going to go do. And there's like something really important that's happening. I need to go do it. And it was about a year later, August of 2002, that I was on active duty and
0: And what did you what did you join?
2: Um, I joined the Navy. How did you
0: pick that? Being in Wisconsin. You know, it's
2: really interesting. I think it was it had to do with the recruiter at the time because I was I was definitely a youth that was you know getting you know some help from the community and different things. And at that time in the Midwest, you know, recruiters would come into those areas and introduce themselves and such. And so um, I just remember him as being somebody that. I was like, okay, like he, he feels, he seems confident. Like I, I you know, he carries himself, like, like this is like something I want to be a part of. Um, and it sort of seems cliche, but at the time it was everything for me because I didn't, you know, the friends that I had at the time and I had, you know, been living with friends at a very young age and such, like weren't really going a lot of places, jail. I lost a lot of friends to, you know, death, you know, suicide, overdoses. There, there was just a lot of that in my life. Um, and so just being around somebody who, um, just sort of represented like a possibly different future and like life was was huge for me. It was like a role model mentor. Um, and uh, so I I joined. What, uh, what
0: job did you sign up for?
2: So I came in as a uh, signalman. Um, and that's what I went to A school for, but I dates myself a little bit because it was already kind of like a dying rate at the time. <laughs> so I went to A school to be a signalman. And um, my first orders were actually to the USS Kitty Hawk and I, in Japan at the time. And I was, um, like set to leave about a week later and my orders got canceled because there wasn't enough birthing for females at the time and I was rerouted to ACB1 in San Diego and I got there and um I was getting issued camis and boots and like we were getting ready to deploy to Kuwait because this was like August of or this was like latter part of 2002 so we were like getting ready to go overseas um, for everything that was happening during Operation Enduring Freedom and during that time and so um I was like, what, what did I just get myself into? Because I thought I was going to a ship, and then here I am in, like, a whole different world. As I'm sure you're familiar. The CVs are just a whole different realm and such. And so, But it was um, it was such a blessing for me because it, it was like a form of reparenting, like the amount of structure that I went into. I knew exactly what was expected of me. And it was also the first time that I learned how much, I think because of the environment I grew up in, that I um, – I thrive in, in crisis in some ways, like things get crazy, uh, something's happening, everything for me just kind of calms down and I, I I wanted to lead and I found myself in a lot of leadership positions. I found myself an opportunity like volunteer for this, volunteer for that, I'll do it. And it really gave me the opportunity to um, just build a sense of self for the first time, the community, the feedback that I was getting um, was just huge for me. And then all kinds of doors opened up for me. The idea of like, I could go to school, I could do this. Um, my first interest in doing some counseling such actually came from, I, I thought originally I was gonna go to school to be, um, to do organizational psychology to for leadership. Like that was really my goal. I, I always wanted to be a leader. For me- Was this
0: before you joined the Navy or once you got in?
2: Once I got in, Gone. you know, I, I, and I, I was just kind of drawn into these situations where I knew that there was like, Um, I don't know if you want to call it a natural leadership quality, but there was just like this part of me that um, I had gone through so much and I had overcome so much that it was like people need need that, you know, to like hear that story, to be a part of that. Like it just, um, it was a really powerful thing for me. Um, And I was realizing for other people as well at the time. And so... Um, I got offered an opportunity to do some work with um, families in uh, pre- and post-deployment sort of support. And it was very logistical at the time. How do you support families in like, um, you know, preparing for the logistics of bills or separation or what's going on. But what what I realized at that time was that There was a significant amount of um, support that these families needed and and understand like how much role shifts were happening when one of the the partners would deploy and then I'm making this new group of friends while my my husband or my wife is gone and they're making their new group of friends and our kids are getting used to me as playing like both mom and dad and doing these different roles and they just did not have the resources to be able to deal with that. And I think because I had gone through what I did as a a child, I, I could recognize things related to like mental health health or relationship issues or things like that, I didn't really have the skill set yet to know exactly what to do with that other than just my mindset was always like, you just do keep moving forward and and one step at a time and you make healthy decisions and you recognize that, you know, I don't exist in a vacuum and the things I do matter and how I um, treat people matter. And I could support people a lot with that. But it was, um, that was what first drew me to the idea of counseling. And um, at the time I was uh, working... Uh, When I decided to go to school for counseling, I was working as a contractor for HSC3. So this was after So how long did you end up doing in the Navy? So I did five years. So I did four years on active duty, and then I extended for a year. How was
0: that first deployment to Kuwait?
2: It was... intense, um, it, you know, the, we, we were at the Kuwaiti Naval Base. Uh, we came in during a time where really nothing was set up. Our goal is that being the CB's there, ACB1 and yeah. ACB2 were there at the same time, so when we got there, we knew we're not leaving for a while. Um, <laughs> Props and to the CB's, by the way, yes. <laughs> CB's
0: are awesome. Yes,
2: they definitely are, and I definitely make friends with builders because your, your, your camp will be real nice, oh, yeah. and you'll get a nice <laughs> little shelf up there yeah. and all the things that you need, so. And they'll
0: steal you whatever you need, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> which no one wants to talk about. <laughs>
2: I learned how to be very uh, resourceful. There, there was also some aspects of being in the military as a female in that type of environment and a lot of things that were going on during that time that, that made it a scary situation sometimes, too. You want to feel safe in that environment. But there was, um, you know, you're you're in the middle of the desert and people are going through wartime and we had, you know, incoming missiles coming in. We're running, you know, conics bosses that are buried in the ground for, like, shelter. Like, people were um, on edge during that time for sure. And so... Um, uh, but I learned a lot, um, and if anything, it was walking away from that knowing that I could, um, you know, I could, it doesn't matter what life throws at you. If you just keep moving <laughs> forward, like, you, you'll, you'll get through it, um, for sure. So,
1: I could, If I can interrupt, I remember you telling a story one time, Megan, about, like, having to dig, dig holes to sleep in the ground and having like your gun there because of like how big the scorpions were. And like having to protect yourself and guard yourself from the scorpions while you're in a hole in the desert at 127 degrees and you're like 19. It's like, yeah, I think you can pretty much handle whatever is gonna come your way in life. Um, but yeah. I mean, this is sort of
2: that, that in, where you're talking about earlier, where one person can have one situation growing up and another can have an entirely different situation. And, and how you choose to respond is going to uh, very much so shape the outcome of who you are. And so for me, I just, uh, you know, there was a lot of opportunity to move into fear and have fear make you small. And for me, it was just like, I'm just going to keep going. But there wasn't, at that time in my life, I, I can't say, I mean, I was very young that I was intentionally like, this is what I'm doing to overcome, or that really wasn't there for me. It just like uh, stopping or, or not, not moving or going backwards wasn't an option just keep moving forward with whatever kind of presented itself to me so um so yeah I was there for a year and actually mm-hmm. didn't find out till the day before we were leaving that I was leaving so it was like you know coming up to you, like here's your plane ticket you're leaving tomorrow I'm like cool oh. and at the time you know cell phones were not allowed we weren't we couldn't have any of that and so there was two phones in the camp for a camp of um Gosh, don't quote me on this, but there was a lot of people. I mean, the, the army was there. I won't quote you on a lot of people
0: <laughs> being super specific like that. The you know, uh,
2: you know, special Operations, special forces were there. The air force was there. We had Australian, um, British, you know, military. It was a huge camp, Kuwaiti naval base, and. Um, so uh, two phones for a large group of people would make the line very long that you're waiting, you would be standing there in hours, and then there'd be an incoming missile, everybody would have to <laughs> run, go take you know shelter, and then I gave up. up. So I, did, I didn't make any phones. And also for me, I, I, you know, I, was, I was moving forward. I didn't have a whole lot of connections to the past, so I, I would just, uh, um, yeah. So, I did.
0: so you get done with your Navy career, you end up as a contractor, and this is so. When did you end up like uh, going to school?
2: So that was when I was a when I was a contractor. I start so I started with my. I actually went to school to be a pharmacy tech while I was still on active duty. I was um you know single mom at the time and um just raising my son and going to school at night and working during the day. And uh, pharmacy tech seemed like a good option for me at the time to have a job when I got out. So I finished that before I got out. I started working at um, a compounding pharmacy, and very. Quickly quickly realized this is not what I want to do. Um, Went back to school uh, for my bachelor's in psychology and then started working towards my master's um, in that contractor work. So um, my bachelor's and my master's all came um, after I had separated from uh, the military. So, and so yeah, I, I obtained my master's while I was working as a contractor. And was um, introduced for my practicum. So, uh, in counseling psychology, you have to do some uh, pre-degree and post-degree hours, about a total of three thousand direct, like um, direct and indirect clinical hours, in order to obtain your degree. And so, you get introduced to various treatment centers while you're in your school to, um, you know, get that experience and practice. And that was when I was actually introduced to Humble Chia, which was owned by Carrie and Carlin at the time it was a treatment center for um, clients with complex psychiatric disorders. And again. For me at the time, I was like, this is just sounds so interesting, family therapy and all of that. But I, in my mind, I was going to school because this was the school that I could do at night while I was commuting. I was commuting from Temecula down to uh, Naval Air Station at the time. It was like 72 miles one way. And so I was just kind of moving through life, like, it, you know, just doing the things that I thought I needed to do to move forward. Um, and then I met Carrie and Carlin, and I came to know Humble Chia. And Humble Chia was just this really special place it was like I like to call it like a a very much all about like small business ownership and like what that means for our economy and such but Carrie and Carlin just they just own this uh treatment center and it was not it was just a a, a small family owned um place where like people just a hundred percent threw themselves into helping these families and I I was drawn to it so much because the families that were walking through there were definitely the types of family, like could have been my family, right? And and here I was in this place where really beautiful things were happening in terms of supporting these people suffering through very severe things. I mean, when you have a loved one who has a, a chronic complex psychiatric disorder, something that you're not getting rid of, right? We're, we're like making friends with this. We're learning how to... How to um, you know, uh, accept it, grieve what I thought was going to be for my kiddo. You know, whatever it may be. Um, when a family lets you into their life to like walk through that path with them, it is a very special thing. And I, I knew at that point, like, okay, I, this is what I want to do. I want to work with families. Um, and I, when I, st- I started to realize, not in only in my own life, but in what we were doing, that we were creating like generational change. Like when you can help a family system shift away from abuse or addiction or grief or um, in, in a way that allows them to envision a different identity for themselves, like life could be different, like we don't actually have to keep going in this way or continue these patterns. I mean, you think about the the impact of that for years and years to come. We're talking about hundreds of people that could be impacted by one person choosing to do something different. That was, like, everything to me, and that, that's what I knew I wanted to do. And it's what I realized I was able to do for my family in a lot of ways. Um, and then this sort of um, became my family um, when I was there. Like, just I was able to be seen in a different way. It was like, oh, we have this new leadership opportunity. Like, you do it. And I'm like... Me,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and this is an interesting. Uh, this is the kind of the intersection between me and you mm-hmm. two, which is, you know, I got a I got a group of friends, and we invest in a bunch of different things, and um, at one point, you know, my buddy Joe said, "Hey, we're gonna invest in this. We're gonna we're gonna buy some real estate, and it's gonna be used by this mental health facility." And I was like, "You know, cool." I mean, literally, with them, they just kind of tell me what, like, they tell me a, a three minute. Hey, this is what we're putting money into. I say, cool. Give him some money. We throw it in there, and at some point, we invested in sort of a, a branch of Hamletchia, mm-hmm. and then that branch got swept into Hamletia and the whole thing got bought. And so, you know, we we it was a cool situation for us. You know, we we made money and high fived, and and then that eventually rolled into this new venture, which is the a new treatment center. Which again, I mean, I'm just basically like a. a I don't want to say a gambler, but a little bit of a gambler, like you're just letting money roll, you know, like, oh, just leave it on the table. And that's kind of what I did. And next thing you know, I'm invested in this, uh, in this new treatment center, and that's all starting to take place. And um, so that's kind of how we all know each other was from that connection, you know, from me just kind of letting my money <laughs> sit on the table and, <laughs> and hope it keeps doing well. Um, that's that's how we all mm-hmm. are, uh, know each other. But look, so, Thank you for your backgrounds. Um, definitely, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast about like each one of your stories because they there's a lot there. But um, I, I want to kind of get to the 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 topic at hand, right? Which is me trying to get a better understanding of mental health issues. And and you know we were talking about it before we hit record that just different things can hit people so differently, and two people can experience the same literally the same traumatic traumatic event, and have totally different reactions as as you were talking megan i was thinking that um like in seal training the people that make it through seal training are 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 so radically different. You've got a kid that grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth and he makes it through no problem. You got another kid that makes a silver spoon in his mouth and he quits the first day. You got someone that grew up on a farm in Iowa and he makes it through no problem. And someone else that grew up on a farm in Iowa and they quit the first day. And everyone in between. You got a kid from the ghetto that that you know didn't have anything and he just makes it through. Some other kid from the ghetto, first day, I'm not putting up with this shit. And that's, so these different lives can have just a, a radically different outcome what are some of the main causes of mental health issues? Like what is, and I know there must be several factors. I mean, there must be some that are hereditary. You kind of mentioned that, Carlin. like there are some hereditary things. Then there must be some things that are brought on by the environment that you grow up in or what you see. So what what are some of the kind of main causes?
1: Mm-hmm. There we go. Um. Well, there's, gosh, there's so many, it's hard to to narrow them down. And, and like I was saying earlier, so many of these things are, uh, they're unseen, they're invisible, they can't be like located so much on a map, so to speak. Um, but things like temperament, you know, like the kind of the traits and characteristics that we're born with are gonna play a role. Our upbringing, of course. Like I'm thinking, when you would share that story about being in Kuwait and digging, I'm like, I, for, first of all, I would have never made it there. <laughs> But like, I, no, I don't think I could have done that. Now, is it? Do I not have a uh, tenacious personality or persevere? No, I've got some of that. But I think about my early upbringing, right, where just living was hard, digging a hole to like survive. That would have been at this whole other level for me. So, my my history. So people's histories, um, messages like in the family, like that's a that. And this is my opinion. What's a
0: message? What does that mean?
1: Like for example. I like to ask families or family members sometimes so how did you guys do feelings Hmm. (laughs) what were feelings like most of the time you're going to have folks say oh we don't talk about feelings (laughs) we we don't actually do feelings oh okay so when something difficult happens you know you, you get bullied at school you your boyfriend breaks up with you. Gra- grandma passes away. What, what did you guys do? Oh, nothing. We just w- had dinner. <laughs> you know, right? So right here, right, there's something. A family that didn't acknowledge feelings, talk about feelings, have a way to pro- like process what was happening is going to have a certain effect versus the family you ask, and they're like, oh, we talked about feelings all the time. Anytime something happened, we'd sit down and have a big family meeting about it. That person is going to be shaped very differently in terms of managing stress and managing conflict and negotiating hardship, right? So, so family messages and family um, almost like traditions around things mm-hmm. like feelings or how you handle hardship. I mean, I'm the book I'm writing right now has a lot to do with the impact of secrets. So and finding that that has a big um,
0: well, like impact. Secrets, in the secrets
1: like, yeah, like we don't talk, like if something happens. Um, we, we're just not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about it amongst ourselves. We're not going to share this with the outside world, under the rug, in the vault, whatever you want to call it. So you think about again, and it's not gonna affect everybody the same mm-hmm. way, but how easy it would be for a person then to develop, especially if they're young, this idea that like, oh, when, when bad things happen or when difficult things happen, you're not supposed to talk about that. You're supposed to keep it to yourself. Don't, don't share. So what happens for those folks who are faced with something difficult or faced with a hard decision or faced with a stressful um, circumstance?
0: And then it's also so individual Mm -hmm. because someone can say, oh, you know, my grandma died and I'm looking at my dad and he looks stoic. That seems like a good thing to do. That seems like a good example. Right. Yes. Or, oh, my grandma died and my dad looks stoic. He doesn't care. And so it's like your interpretation people's individual interpretation and even when you were talking Megan like um, when you joined the military or even you saw this recruiter mm-hmm. and you kind of say oh this guy looks put together and you get the military and you're like okay here's what I should be doing and like your perception of what you're seeing and then your decision to say oh I can I can step up I can volunteer for this I can make this happen like just people's own interaction with reality and what's going on, mm-hmm is so different. Mm-hmm. I, and is there a way that you can take people and show them the positive one? Does that does that work? Is that a is that a thing to do? Like let me give you an example. I, I have a kids podcast that I do sometimes and I'll answer kids questions cuz I've written a bunch of kids books. And one of the one of the questions I got one time was from a kid and I've gotten multiple forms of this question is and this actually reminds me of you, Carlin. The question was like, "Oh, um I sometimes kids don't like to hang out with me and i feel like i'm i'm alone mm-hmm. um w- w- how can i how can i feel better about that and i answered the question like hey it's okay to be alone mm-hmm. I, I i'm alone sometimes and it's okay sometimes you can be alone and you don't always have to have people around you and it doesn't doesn't may, mean they don't like you it doesn't mean you're not going to have friends it's just that sometimes you're alone and, and that's okay and i mean that's to me is a legitimate answer because you know, if, let's say let's say your mom says, "Why are you alone again? Why don't you have any friends?" Mm-hmm. That might start yes. to mess you up. Absolutely. You know, as opposed to your mom saying, "Oh, you know, oh, what, what are you reading? Oh, here's a book." You know, so how we're interacting and how things, uh, h- how you perceive the world, mm-hmm. can be so different that these things. And again, you got a kid that grew up in Iowa that quits, and you get a kid that grew up in Iowa on a farm. They both grew up in the same exact thing. One of them quits. One of them makes it. Right. So. Do you, as therapists, as psychologists, get to try and guide and open and show those positive things? Is that what we're doing here?
2: Well, I think, I. I- I think we're trying to create some reparative experiences, because when you talk about the story of the guy who quit or the guy who went, I would be really curious about his history and past around what happened when he was struggling, when he was having a hard time or needed to move through something or didn't know if he could move forward. What was the response or message that he received in his environment? And the thing about, you know, some of these aspects of mental health, very complex, hard to pinpoint exactly Mm -hmm. what needs to be. But the story that you just told about this child, that response, when someone chooses to lean in and be vulnerable in a way and ask a question or look out for support how how we respond to them is pivotal because it shapes their experience of whether or not that's a safe thing to do again in the future so we talk about like what cultures or what things influence why someone might you know keep things to themselves or be less inclined to share or come forward if they're struggling with something Um, is, you know, how we respond is huge. And so, uh, you know, there's so much aspects of what's going on for another person that we don't actually have control over. But what we do have control over is sort of our own reaction to when someone is sharing something with us that appears upsetting. Um, Do we want to shut it down and kind of this should be fine and get moved? move past it because that creates an experience for them or can we kind of tolerate whatever feelings are coming up for us when we see one who's someone who's struggling or with working through something that I have no idea how to fix or how to respond to but can I sit with them for enough time to create an experience for them that um, lets them know that like if something's coming up for me again or if I need to work through this it's safe to, to come to this person or this environment is safe enough to be able to share what's going on for me um, because if it's not and that person goes inside. Then, when we look at more severe things like suicide or very chronic, you know, psychiatric disorders, that becomes much more debilitating um, in a way that can, you know, cost someone their life.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think what you said. I also um, I so appreciate I give what a you, a good answer? you did. You did. That was really okay. good. Very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, of how you responded to mm-hmm. the kid, right? To me, I'm like, there, there it is. Perfect. Right? As opposed to, say, a mom or somebody else that would be like, well, come on, what what are you doing wrong? How, how come you don't come you have do any have friends? friends? right? Mm-hmm. Versus like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, bud, but you know what? It's okay. It's mm-hmm. okay sometimes to be alone. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry that you're feeling bad about that today, but okay, it's all right. There's something about the... Like, I'm just acknowledging what you're going through. I'm not trying to change it. I'm not making it wrong. I'm not telling you you should be doing something different. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that brings out that safety piece. And In fact, some um, research into resiliency, so speaking to mm-hmm. how come some kids kind of
3: mm-hmm.
1: bounce back and get better and some kids really flounder over here. Um, some of the research shows that there needs to be opportunities to make mistakes and, like, not be essentially shamed or made in trouble opportunity to fix them Mm -hmm. which means you got to use new skills and like try and experiment and trial and error and you need to have at least one adult if you got more that's even better but you need to have one adult that is kind of a safe guide like somebody that you can feel safe with that's going to kind of get you And say, you know what, buddy, it's all right. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that one did not work out so well. We'll try it again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Versus the shaming, you're wrong. How come you did that? You should know better. Like those kind of things. So resiliency is about having adults, especially as kids, having adults that can say, yep, you know what? Sometimes it's just like that. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But it's okay. You'll be fine.
0: Um, I had another guy who's a neuroscientist named Andrew Huberman on here. And we were talking about like winning and losing his kids. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's through your whole life, you got to push yourself. You got to lose sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he actually gave the percentage and he's got, you know, research or whatever. He's a Stanford doctor. So I guess he's smart or whatever, <laughs> Andrew. But, you know, we came down It's like 80% of the time you want the kid to kind of do well. And then 20% of the time they should like lose. Struggle If, if they start what i did with my kids was lose 90 percent of the time like put them in really hard situations and that's not the good way to do it <laughs> <laughs> luckily my kids turned out pretty resilient but um you know I, I was just like oh you're gonna get beat down it's gonna make you tougher it's gonna make you stronger and no what happens is they just start to feel like a loser right so you got to be careful with that but that 80 percent, i think it's a good number to Okay, eighty percent of the time you're winning or you're evenly matched, but you're doing well. Twenty percent of the time, you know you got to be pushing yourself into some situations, mm-hmm. and that's the weird thing. Didn't like the SEAL training. Like I'm talking about kids that were division one wrestlers, right? Mm-hmm. Quit. Like division one wrestling is so insanely hard, mm-hmm. and they they have all kinds of hypotheses. You know, somebody that was a really good athlete, they've never really been. They've never lost, and when you get to SEAL training, you're gonna lose. Like you're you're gonna fail stuff, and so that can be a problem uh, with people's mentality because they've just never lost before. And then there's you know some kid that's been getting beat down his whole life. He's like, oh cool, I failed. Whatever, I'm gonna keep going. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, how do you how do you diagnose? You know, again, I, I made the car mechanic thing and. The cool thing, the interesting thing about this metaphor is even a car mechanic, you bring a car and there's a whatever, a a, a tapping noise in the engine. He doesn't necessarily know 100% what it is. He's like, "Ah, it could be this, could be that. He's got to dig in there. So is that the way diagnosis works? You're sort of like, "Uh, okay, here's a problem. You're getting super emotional. We, We don't know what's causing it yet. That's the tapping, right? You're getting super emotional. And then what are we doing to diagnose? How does it happen?
1: I, pretty much. I mean, it is a. Um, let's look over here. Oh, that doesn't really seem to be the problem. Let's try this over here. Now, personally, what I have found is, um, and and not everybody works this way. This is totally fine. Is I like to go into how like how how did you get here? Right. right. So I'm going to ask all kinds of questions about what happened in the family and how were things talked about and what did you experience and how was that managed in the family because I see those things as They shape. So now we have this tapping that's happening right now where there's something probably that went on back then that has to do with it. Some therapists, some psychologists don't... um, They look at like what's happening right now and how do we move it forward. They're not going to spend a lot of time in the past. It's preference. But I mean, I can't tell you how many times what walked through the door is not what we ended up finding. Sure. Right? Somebody... I mean, my... um, Some of my earlier years in private practice, I worked a lot with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And because I was also still learning and, you know, didn't have as much experience as I would have within a few years is, oh, oh, it's meal plan. This person is afraid of getting fat. This person thinks they're more popular if they're skinny, whatever, all of these things. So we would kind of target those behaviors. Let's get you on a good meal plan. Let's talk about self-esteem, et cetera, et cetera. Over the years, it was I mean, it was kind of insane how much I discovered through looking back like there was trauma in there or um, some kind of really defining event that happened in that young person's life, that the eating disorder behaviors, so to speak, were almost like the manifestation. something else
0: what what kind of what would be a something else
1: um like um abuse abuse. you like often especially with girls you'd see like a sexual assault or sexual abuse Mm -hmm. um sometimes something that was happening in the family that was not being talked about would be um kind of stuffed down and then expressed through these behaviors so Um, almost psychologically you can interpret that a little bit as if we're spending all of our time over here on meal plans and weight gain and weight loss, what are we not looking at? The secret over here that nobody wants to talk about, Mm -hmm. right? So sometimes finding an origin um, that then explains the symptoms, Mm -hmm. then you treat the origin, the issue over here versus the symptoms, right? Kind of like the analogy I've used a million times even with clients is if you come in with like a severe, like a with pneumonia, a severe case of pneumonia, and the only thing we're doing is giving you some cough syrup to help your cough, like that's gonna help a little bit. I mean, it's mm-hmm. gonna help you feel a t- tiny bit better, but nothing, in fact, you might even get worse mm-hmm. if we don't really treat the thing that's really underneath the cough. Like the cough actually isn't really the issue. <laughs> Well, this,
2: this is, is thing. yeah. This mm-hmm. is the really humanizing mm-hmm. part in terms of what you're talking about because I think we have to be really mindful and responsible of, with as clinicians with how we talk about the use of diagnoses. Mm-hmm. You know, in my private practice, I often get people coming to me that it's their first time they've reached out for mental health services. They've gone somewhere and they met, s- spent just a short meeting with someone, and they were given a diagnosis: bipolar disorder, something that's very seer- severe. You know, they go look this up on the internet. They start attaching all these things to their personality. WebMD and, mm-hmm. and now. Now you know I am bipolar disorder. I you know have I start to attach these like things to my personality, and that language is very powerful over time because if I am something or something is happening to me, I have much less control over how I respond to it as, expo- as opposed to this idea that um, I'm experiencing some symptoms associated with bipolar disorder, or I'm experiencing some symptoms associated with this, or you know after some reflection, I've I've I have a, a, unaddressed trauma in my past that's showing up like you know, very volatile outbursts or something like that. And so I think, you know, how we talk about it is really important um, because nowadays, and if you have kids my age, there's plenty of kids walking around self-diagnosed as OCD or depression or these sorts of things because they hear about something and I am this and I can't do this because I have this. And um, so I think one of the first things we try to do with people is start to talk about like the impact and history because it allows us to create a framework to talk about things that are more humanizing as opposed to um, you know, the symptoms, in terms mm-hmm. of, or like a label. Right. right, sure. So
0: this made me think of something that I said a, a while ago. Um, I looked up the definition of being insane, and hmm. being insane was when your, your reality doesn't match reality of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And I was, I, we have an online training program, and I was telling you, I said, hey, everyone is insane, right? Yeah, everyone is to some level insane, because if the three of us witness an event, or participate in an event. It's going to be a little bit different for all of us. Like our our reality is going to be a little bit different. Well, no, you said this. I didn't say that. I said this. And so we're going to have different interpretations of reality. So everyone, therefore, is a little bit insane, <laughs> right? And it's just how insane are you? And when when you start looking at that, like this, the, the most the, the horrifying thing, um, like anorexia, mm-hmm. where the person is so clearly m- malnutritioned a- a- and so clearly like 100% of people in the world would say you need to eat more and that one person the the, the, the person that has it mm-hmm. just they just don't see that that's got to be the scariest f- scariest environment like for a parent I can't even fathom okay. what mm-hmm. that's what that's doing Um. So as you, you're talking about Carlin, you're talking about addressing the, the like, finding this original, this initial problem. And that's what we're able, how, how we're able to address that, mm-hmm. bring that into the light, get that thing solved, and it solves the symptom that we're all seeing.
1: Pr- pretty something. much, I mean, and that's the mechanic work, right? Is you're, you're kind of digging, and, and you know, sometimes the person will know, like, I had this thing happen, and I think my symptoms are related to this. Sometimes they're not aware. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, a young girl that I was treating for anorexia. She was a cheerleader and a ballerina. So so much pressure, right, to maintain this very malnourished, very thin body and all the guilt, like even eat, you know eating something that had a carb in it, mm-hmm. you know, just like oh, I can't, I'm gonna get fat, blah, blah, blah. I'm not gonna get picked. I mean, so destructive and um, interfering with life. So I'm working with her and I'm trying this thing and this thing and we're trying over here and I don't know, your worth isn't wrapped up in your ballerina stuff. So you were
0: focused on the physical, like, At the oh, time. you look fine. You because
1: need- this is all she was presenting right. with, is like, I, I know. Like, it's almost like, I know I, I, this is not good for me, I just don't really know what to do about it. But there wasn't really much else. Tried getting the parents in, they didn't wanna come in, which really should've been my first clue. And long story short, just to, to get to this point, is months and months of meeting with her and like, well, what about this? And I don't know, what about that? She says, Well, um, you know, my mom said she didn't want me to talk about this, but I I feel like I should. I think I was molested by my cousin when I was you know, like twelve. I'm like, oh. So I'm like, here here we go. So I'm asking her all these questions and you know, she just tells this Really, very sad, um, kind of horrible story about learning that she like learning something at school that made her think, "Oh my God, I think that happened to me." Going home, telling her parents, and her parents like, "Do not tell anybody about this. This is going to ruin everybody's life." La 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 la, right? Just don't talk about it. Well, no, now she's a ballerina, and the, the, right, like mm-hmm. all that got. Um, stuffed down and kind of channeled in this way that she could control her environment a lot of time Um, a lot of the time so we start unpacking this and it turns out as she tells me about this event that made her think that she might have been molested that's not what happened she was in some class at school and they were talking about something and she like almost like misinterpreted so this for years, there was this whole thing that had happened in her family where she said she had been molested, but she, re- she really wasn't. They thought she was, shut it down, didn't let anybody talk about it, and now she's coming in for treatment for anxiety and an eating disorder, right? As soon as we got there and we got it, and she was, I mean, she bought in. She was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. At this point, she's maybe 18. I, I think I started seeing her. She was 15, Like all of a sudden, it was like all that symptomology went away. Mm -hmm. I mean, it didn't vanish overnight because she'd been doing those behaviors for a long time, but that clarity of like, oh, this is what this was about, this being made to be wrong. You know, I thought this bad thing had happened to me and I was like essentially punished for it and told that if I tell and something happens to my cousin, it's going to like be my fault. So not being able to talk about it being told by her mom, don't go talk about this in therapy. She wanted to go to therapy for, right? But, but it was that, like that's an example of you kind of, we just had to peel and peel and ask questions. And, and when we found it, it cleared up, because right? Like you said, it, like it kind of brought it into the light. We could address what the real problem was. And then the symptoms, the cough, so to speak, alleviated because the, the root, the core had been addressed. So there is a lot in in psycho- psychological practice and treatment that does involve some
0: And it took you digging. years, three years to go through this. Yeah. And I
1: saw her every week. Mm-hmm. Because she, and she was really like, I was told not to talk about this. So she kind of knew something was back there, mm-hmm. but she was also young and had been directed by her family, don't talk about this. If you talk about this and she calls the school and your cousin gets in trouble, then aunt and uncle are, right, like, you know, uh-huh.
0: the, the. so just... But it was, what was, if you can go into it a little bit, like what, because you, you said it didn't really happen, but she thought it happened.
1: Well, yeah, so she said she was at school one day and they were doing one of these assemblies, right, where you're giving like the kids education on you know, healthy touch or inappropriate touch. Like, just, you know, just, mm-hmm. maybe she's 15 at this time. She was also a very immature, only child, a little bit sheltered, so maturity wise, she was a little, little um, behind, I think. And so she said, so this thing was happening, and I told my friend, oh, my God, I think I might have been molested because this thing happened with my cousin. So I'm like, okay, so can you tell me what happened with your cousin? So she tells me this event, which was really like at a party one night, like all the cousins and aunts and uncles, the kids decided to, like, like, play a joke and, like, skinny dip. Like, they all went into the pool house, like, stripped off their clothes and, like ran into the pool and made a big joke and everyone got in trouble because the parents were there and this kind of thing and she goes it was my cousin's idea i said okay she goes so he molested me right i'm like what what in her mind Mm -hmm. she had 'Cause she heard this thing at school and her friend said, Oh my god, it was your cousin that said you should take off your bathing, I said, Oh, I think that's molest, I think that's inappropriate whatever. Like uh, it, it, grew, yeah, it just grew into this thing. But when she really when we went back and walked through the event, she goes, Well, no, it was it was my cousin's idea, but like we all did it. No one t- t- no one touched anybody. It was mm-hmm. we thought it would be funny. So tragic. I mean, this is a this to me and she did once we got there, she did beautifully. She's off at college. I mean she, doing wonderfully, awesome. but the years, right? Mm-hmm. Of a misunderstanding of something that happened. It was all like the telephone game, right? She told this person, they told this. they It just, by the time it arrived at par- her parents, it was this whole other thing.
0: Scary. So scary. Uh, Megan, something you were talking about, when you're talking about, oh, people kind of self-diagnosed at some point, or they get a diagnosis from somebody, and oh yeah, we had a, a friend of mine on here there's an ancient uh, Native American saying that something along the lines of, it's not a diagnosis, it's a curse. Mm. Like if you get diagnosed with something and you you can hear it as a curse, like this is what you are. Uh, h- how much play does it give to me? I mean, well, obviously I wrote a book called Extreme Ownership, taking ownership of like what's going on in your world. And instead of being, oh, I'm bipolar, that's what I am. It's like, no, I have some symptoms and here's how I'm going to get control of this. Is that something that comes into play in getting people moving in the right direction?
2: I would say absolutely yes. I mean, because what we're trying to do is help people... you know, identify differently with what's happening in their life or create a new narrative or story around what's going on in their life. So, I mean, this happens not just with the individual, but with families, right? Like if I'm, uh, if I hear that my kiddo who's historically done really well, you know, they're talented, they've done it well in music all through high school, all of a sudden they're in their first or second year of college and they're starting to display some really interesting symptoms. Um, they have their first psychotic break. It's like devastating for a family, like what happened. It's very common around that age range for something like this to happen. Um, all of these ideas start coming up. Um, uh, my, my son has schizophrenia. He'll, he'll never be able to get married. He'll, he'll never be able to hold down a job. Um, we're, we're never going to see our son graduate from college. We're not going to be able to do the family vacations. You just It just goes on and on. And so you sit with these families, and there's just such a sense of um, hopelessness. And so what, what we try to do is, is, is come back a little bit to say, like, well, you know, why, why don't you think he's able to live alone? Well, he hasn't taken out the trash all week. His his room is a mess. He stays in there all by himself. Well, well, how come, how is he able to do that? Like, how is he able to sit in his room all day and, like, not experience the natural consequences associated? If I went in my room all day, stopped going to school or work or whatever it may be, like, things would fall apart in my life. How is that able to happen? And so what we can get to, and this takes a lot of time, is essentially the fear associated with, like, if I was to—, to push him towards something or if he, he he's not capable or, or because of this illness now he can't do this and we have to really unpack and it's different for every family but we have to really unpack that to figure out what it is that they've decided collectively this means for their life right these symptoms or this diagnosis and then help them envision something sort of different for themselves and then create experiences for individuals to play that out well he's been taking out the trash all week here and if he doesn't his peer tells him like hey you didn't take out the trash and so go do that or um, experience some of the natural consequences associated with I5 just, leave my stuff everywhere, you know, but my roommate tells me like, hey, you know, this room like stinks. Can you like clean this up? Like some of that peer-to-peer interaction, but we have to create those opportunities for that. And then interestingly, when people start to engage in this, it's not like a cognitive, like, oh yeah, I'll go do this thing and something will be different. It's usually more like I act, I have these experiences, I walk through something difficult. My symptoms got really activated when I was going to go try to learn how to take the bus or do do the trolley. But you know what? Like, I had someone with me and I was able to do it and it was like okay and it didn't stay that way forever and then so the, the, the kind of the insight comes a little bit later uh, with the experience that like I can experience some discomfort or I can let my kiddo struggle a little bit or go through something and I can actually tolerate some of my fear that this could be like devastating for him because you know oftentimes when we get to it especially for families who have you know, we're we're sort of um, in a good place if a family's coming to us at a first break because we can help them, like, right there. But oftentimes people come to us 14 hospitalizations. Like a last resort yeah. type thing. 14 hospitalizations in, multiple short-term treatment centers. What does a break
0: look like? What does, that, what does that look like?
2: I mean, it, it it looks like a break from reality. It's different for each person. You know, a, um, a, that process sometimes can— appear like what you see more often in like movies and such sort of bizarre or paranoia or I see aliens sometimes um, for people with significant personality disorders and this way like delusions can be grounded almost in something like that feels real like it could be a real situation but it's in fact not when you get to down to it so um, but ultimately it's just a, a disconnect from what's happening in the here and now in a lot of different ways and could be auditory, it could be tactile in terms of a person's you know, experience of what they're feeling in their body. It could be visual, um, just a, a break from reality.
0: A break from reality. So a family, they got a 18-year-old kid, a 20-year-old kid, they're in college they're going to college everything's fine and then all of a sudden just give me an example what does this look like
2: so I mean for example what it might look like is they're calling home and like my neighbors are they're they're listening to me my neighbors are really bothering me like they're they're listening through the walls I, I know that they're doing these things oh, so this is
0: like an obvious.
2: I mean, it could be, yes. Or it could be as a parent, you're hearing this, you're like, that's really odd. Like, why would the neighbors be listening to them? Or so sometimes this can go on for a period of time where there's like some things that, you know, you notice some more isolation or not hanging out with friends as much, or maybe there's some substance use that is sort of new. And so it's not always so like
0: in so your face obvious. obvious. Yeah, It might not be like the neighbors are watching me. It might be like, oh, I'm not doing anything this weekend.
1: Yeah, or even how many times we've had um, like somebody come into the treatment program and the parents say, well, we thought everything was great. He's at college. like he seems like he's fine, but we started getting calls from his friends. Mm-hmm. Hey, we think something's going on. It's not really coming out anymore. seems to be hanging out in his room all the time. But then we call him and he says he's okay. Right? So there's this like I, we don't really know what's going on and how many times we've had uh, you know family say. So we just decided to like get in the car and drive up there and see what was going on for ourselves. Mm-hmm. and they find their kid like, Disheveled, maybe mm-hmm. haven't been eating. So what's going on with that kid?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, like, what? What's an example of? Okay, I get the call. Hey, your son is. He's hey, you're, hey, you know, F- Billy, Billy's not come out with us for like mm-hmm. three weeks. We haven't even seen him. We just want to call you and let you know. Like, he's really been acting weird. And so I call Billy, and Billy says, "No, I'm fine. I just been studying really hard, mm-hmm. and this has been a pain at school. And I'm really sick of Fred, anyways. Mm-hmm. So I'm just doing my own thing." And I go, oh, "Okay." And then, you know, I get a call, another call. It's his ex girlfriend. You know, I just I saw him the other day. He just looked totally different. Mm-hmm. So I drive up there, and there he is in his room. Um, his room is a mess. What, what's going on with him? Mm-hmm. What what is it? Is it a is it something that he saw? Is it something that got triggered? Is it like what is it? it Do we know?
1: It, it, Sometimes we do and sometimes we won't. And this is where like the mechanic has to come in, right? And figure Mm -hmm. it out. Sometimes it's gonna be very obvious. Like a more common scenario that we've experienced is like everything was fine. Star athlete, blah, blah, blah. Goes to college, seems to be making friends. Decided to start smoking weed a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then boom, right? It set something off. Again, some people can smoke weed. That will not happen. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's some theory and hypothesis that some people, you can be, like, predisposed for schizophrenia or psychosis, but it not necessarily come out, but it will under certain conditions, and sometimes drug use is one of those. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can have somebody who's predisposed, like has genetic loading, and, and never kind of becomes you know, So you go through your whole life,
0: and you could be yeah. one of these And then people. you've
1: got somebody who has a, a, a genetic predisposition, and they go to college, and they start smoking a little weed, and it, like... Crack something open mm-hmm. internally, and here it comes. But it could
0: be a girlfriend breakup. Totally, sure. could be um, you know, did get into the frat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Disappointment, just, just something mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And this can, in some cases, people can just kind of they're they're changing. Yeah. And sometimes it goes away naturally. Mm-hmm.
3: Sometimes. Sometimes
0: it's like, oh yeah, he was bummed out for a few weeks, but hey, we just saw Billy. He's he's actually Things he's coming over to, come to Yeah, sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's an, and it's we can get a person can get through it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure, we've had folks come in. Like the the one person I'm thinking about was, um, I think he was in his freshman year at college. Again, mm-hmm. g- great student, scholarship to, uh, football. I mean, just a lot of friends, great girl, like just really kind of mm-hmm. all around. And they got a call. the The parents got a call from the police, the local police, in his um, their son's town, that they found him like running around outside, like half naked, like kind of kind of crazy, screaming mm-hmm. and doing weird things. And they're like, "Wait, are you, are you? Did you call the right people? That is not <laughs> my kid." Well, he had smoked. He had never done drugs, or you know, maybe he had a little bit, but smoked weed. And he couldn't. He's like, I don't know. Someone just gave it to me. So who who knows what was in there? Mm-hmm. Well, it did something to this guy's brain. I mean, it just scrambled him. Mm-hmm. He did not know what way it was up or down. Went to the hospital. They brought him to us for treatment. Never been in treatment. I mean, had never had anything happen like this before. He was um, he was back in school. I think by the next semester, like he needed. He came in.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we got him settled, kind of walked through what happened. Soon as the um, the drugs were out of his system, which didn't take a, a long time because he wasn't really a chronic user, mm-hmm. um, he cleared, like he instantly cleared in his mind. So in that case, um, diagnosis-wise, it was a substance-induced psychosis. Mm-hmm.
0: Substance-induced psychosis. psychosis.
1: Mm-hmm. So as soon as the substances were out of his system, he there was no more psychosis, he cleared. So really, it was just helping him almost like recover from, I mean, that was a traumatic event, and he was embarrassed and had all the shame. You know, there was like a lot of stuff he had to kind of process and recover from, and then he went back to college.
0: Same school? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, an early intervention there
0: is Super huge, early. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: because you know, the further away the intervention, the person starts to find ways to self-soothe or whatever might be, and it becomes much more complex mm-hmm. at that point. So.
0: so if someone has one episode, they're easier to help than someone that's had twenty-eight.
3: Like and had the a, parents
0: were just like, "Oh, he'll be fine. Oh, it's just Billy. He's just sure. he acts up sometimes, and then that goes on yeah. for three, mm-hmm. four, five years. He's going to be harder to treat, or the brain stays
2: in a constant state of psychosis for a longer mm-hmm. period of time. It's hard to know what it's going to look like when they come out of that. Right? Well, so, ex,
0: ex, explain what psychosis actually means. i
1: to go. Yeah. Well, it's um, well you had said it earlier. Complex. It's a it's a break in reality. It's like psychosis t- typically is defined as a a break in contact with reality. And what's interesting though about psychosis, and I say this in the the um, the book. presentation and in the right. book, is people can be psycho- people can be psychotic, have a psychotic episode, and it not be related to a mental illness.
0: Right. It, what would that look like?
1: Uh. Anesthesia, like under anesthesia, people have reported hallucinating, malnourishment and dehydration. Somebody can hallucinate, hear voices, have delusions. Um, sleep deprivation. Yep. Sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are in training, they keep you awake for <laughs> yeah. a long time. And you know, we yeah. wouldn't and be surprised if you are seeing some things that maybe are not actually there. Yeah, I was out mm-hmm. in
0: a boat in the middle of the ocean and I thought I saw like traffic mm-hmm. lights mm-hmm. and I was like, hey, we gotta stop you know and, like, and i actually knew that i was hallucinating i was like that can't be real cuz i'm in the ocean but that definitely is a stoplight mm-hmm. and i mm-hmm. think we should stop but that doesn't make any sense so mm-hmm.
1: head injury mm-hmm. um,
0: so psychotic event is when you're you're disconnected from reality mm-hmm. in a big way yeah yes. like
1: a break in kind of the contact in reality yes. like seeing something that isn't there feeling hearing something or delusion right like a belief mm-hmm. that Somebody's following me. Somebody's watching me. um, Somebody's out to get me. I, I was telling one of my friends the other day, in supervision, that one of my very first patients who had schizophrenia and he was pretty severe, um, had a belief that he was like, every once in a while he was reincarnated (laughs) as somebody else. So, but like you know, sometimes he would talk about that like funny. He would be like, "Oh my God, Carlin, remember last week when I told you I thought I was." Ram Dass. I'm like, mm hmm, I do remember that. He's like, wow, that was really weird. I'm like, uh huh.
0: Oh, so he kind of knew it. And then he
1: wouldn't. Like, then sometimes he wouldn't. He'd be like so in it and very like fixed that you, you really couldn't um, kind of talk him out of it, so to speak. So,
0: here I'm going to open up just the mm-hmm. biggest can of worms yeah. ever. What the hell happens when I'm on, <laughs> on the internet and social media and I'm starting to think that I'm a little bit conspiratorial? And I start reading re- reading various websites that are just totally, mm-hmm. you know, Reddit, which is like a website that has a bunch of different random things. I mean, I guess they all do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go down, you can do any Reddit, YouTube, any one of these things. You can go watch something on YouTube that if you have a little bit of an indication that the world might be flat. You guys heard of flat earthers?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. that yep, They're out there. Yeah. Yes. That
0: the, the earth is flat. And there's videos upon videos upon threads upon threads of the earth is flat so if you have a little bit of paranoia about something that can't be good for you
1: you have to be mm-hmm. really mindful of that the internet that is a dangerous place mm-hmm. i mean like web md mm-hmm. self-diagnosing oh yeah yeah yeah,
0: yeah. um do p- how bad is that like i mean you talk about oh uh, somebody sm- can smoke weed. How bad is it if I think, you know what, I really think that there's a world order that's trying to keep me down.
2: Well, I mean, I think it depends on the person and their ability to sort of like self-moderate their exposure to stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Cause if you're, if, if you're in a healthier place and you can moderate your exposure to that and you realize, gosh, I just spent two hours scrolling through this super unhealthy. I'm not feeling good. And I can set some sort of boundaries for myself around that. Then like, what's, it's positive, you know. I think we all have the tendency towards indulgence in some ways, um, but for someone who struggles with that, or who's coming to us, and like every time they turn on the news, there's a significant amount of paranoia for them, and that causes them to act in response to those delusions or thoughts in a way that's like harmful to them or others. Well, then we help moderate some of that you know a lot of the treatment that we do and why it takes so much time is creating some scaffolding around things like that so that people can develop that insight if it's not readily available to them because with something like schizophrenia i mean it's a thought disorder it's impacting your cognition your ability to think in a lot of ways and so um, if someone is not able to self-regulate in that way we help create some scaffolding for them so like maybe we're not watching the news at five tonight because that's not going to end up good because every time you do you End up out on the streets or whatever it might yeah, and be, and in a very paranoid like, state. You just
0: don't want me to watch the news because you don't want really to know what's going on because oh, you're, sure. you're part of the conspiracy. Well, probably <laughs> a lot of
2: times, which is why it's so important to to build a, a sense of rapport and safety with someone. To be consistent in what you're doing and have an environment that's consistent so that people feel safe enough to allow you to support them, and 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 they uh, will in a lot mm-hmm. of ways with time. Um, but the work that we do is not a, a quick fix. Uh, people spend a, a long period of time with us um, and, uh, so that we can develop enough safety where they will buy into trying some of the things that we're requesting might be, you know, or suggesting might be helpful for them. Um, and so that then they can develop some of their own insight, like, oh, wow, I haven't had this much paranoia or I haven't been this kind of undone for a period of time and I also haven't watched the news for this period of time like maybe that is helpful for me and then usually when they come to the latter part of their time or their journey where they're more um, in like a, an outpatient type setting they, they can reflect back some of those things like I didn't like the structure that you put me on or I didn't like this particular thing but I realize now why that was so helpful for me
0: Do people have to be uh, open to Wanting to change in order to change, and mm. uh, if you have someone that's just like uh, the parent put them in there, the twenty-three-year-old kid. Hey, look, you're going in here. You're gonna get fixed. <laughs>
3: that's
2: like that's all us. of from, our people. from our perspective <laughs> is um, especially when you're working with something like a thought disorder, like schizophrenia, a uh, systemic containment. Is incredibly helpful. And
0: Systemic containment?
2: Meaning that the family is helping to support some sort of boundaries around the options that the child has in a lot of ways. Because sometimes people will come to us and their their, their kiddo has schizophrenia, that they don't want to come to treatment, they don't want to do these things, they, they don't want to do some things that are going to help them.
0: Wait, the kid doesn't?
2: The kid doesn't. Okay. But yet... Um, and the family's like, I don't know what to do. He doesn't want to come. It's like, well, you know, how does he have this car? How does he have this apartment? He's like not able to work. And so we help the family really create some structures around, like um, sort of some boundaries in a way of like, I'm here to support you and I'm going to help you on this journey within the context of this realm that's going to be helpful do your for part you. Type thing. Exactly. So a lot of times when when folks come, they aren't necessarily happy to be there, but they just don't have a lot of options. And we really work with family, extended family, grandparents, whatnot, to be like, don't send that five hundred dollar check because if you do, I know you feel bad and he doesn't have any money, he's probably going to be out on the streets drinking or whatever it might be. And so we work with as many people as we can to create a nice, safe container in some ways, which is the treatment environment. Because with what we do, it's not a, a locked setting. It's it's a sort of the least restrictive type of environment in a residential setting, but it requires a ton of containment and support from every member of like the community that's working there and the family to make sure that there's a path, and maybe there's a couple options to the path, but it's really clear, and they're tight and contained um, so that uh, the person can actually have some experiences and we can calm down some of the things that are happening in these symptoms so that they can begin to develop some of their own insight or understanding as to why. And sometimes um, you know, the hardest part about the work that we do is that you can want to help someone, you can want to save them, you can want to, and and, and they might not want that, and it might not be the choice that they have for themselves, and we've had to, you know, Walk through losses in that way as well, you know. So I I do think there is a component of um, that person wanting some of that, and even if somebody on the surface doesn't want it, uh, families and the people around them can do a lot to create an environment for them where they can grow in that desire for themselves. Um, And you know, sometimes people don't.
0: So this is like a tough love scenario in some way. Mm -hmm. Am I right? Sure. It's like a tough love scenario. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, I've got friends and they might be having a hard time with whatever, you know, maybe they're they're drinking or they're they're not doing what they should be doing. And I think most of the time what they need is, bro, what are you doing? You're being an idiot. Stop doing that. And they go, yeah, man, you know what? I'm being an idiot. I need to stop doing that. It seems like that's a vast majority of the time of what people need. What scares me is you know, if I say, wait, hey, what are you doing? You're, you're being an idiot. And they really do have like some significant issue that they don't have any control over that they can't help. And all of a sudden I was just the worst friend ever by saying, dude, you're being a wimp, just get over it and move forward. And they think, oh, Jocko saying I'm a wimp. That means I really am a wimp. That means I'm not good enough that, and they go down. A, I'm I'm worried that they would go down a spiral as opposed to, hey man, Stop acting like that, mm-hmm. hey, quit blaming, quit blaming this incident on the way you're acting now. you know you, you need to go you need to show up to work on time. you need to get a job, you need to stop drinking All, sometimes like that's and I think actually most of the time people just need like, bro, what are you doing?" Mm-hmm. and I'm talking, bro, because these are my friends sure. um, that are dudes, um, even though oddly enough, my daughters call each other bro. bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they call all their friends, bro that are all females they got um, it down so yeah so down. so but but is there some way to to discern whether whether someone's crossed the line into, okay, listen, tough love isn't going to help this individual anymore, and I need to get them some real help because that's a scary thing you know you 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 know I'll experience that with a person that I know, an acquaintance that I have, a friend that I have that oh uh, you know he's not looking good, right? Mm-hmm. Stop working out. Which to me is a big indicator of, oh, stop working out. Doesn't, you know, not really eating like crap and dr- seems to be drinking a lot. And what I wanna say and what I have said to do guys is, bro, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you not working out? You're getting fat, what are you doing? Like, w- how much are you drinking? Are you drinking every night? W- what's wrong with you? Get back on the path, like stop. And oftentimes they're like, yeah, but I've been so lazy. I need to, I've been thinking about this thing, but you're right, I need to keep going. Mm-hmm. But then I get the feeling sometimes is like it's deeper and worse. Is there any way to discern? Is there any warning signs to look out for between these two individuals, one of whom needs this good kick in the ass that's going to get them moving in the right direction? And the other one, I kick them in the ass, they're going to fall down the stairs and it's going to hurt them.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is a that's a it's a tough question I, I mean discernment is important in knowing people's history and such especially in the work we do I think it's different you know when you're looking from a clinical perspective but discernment is huge and at the same time I think one of the hardest things in loving or caring about somebody who's struggling with something is that we don't necessarily have control over how they respond to what we try to give them and so you know coming from a place of if, if, if my approach is is tough love in terms of what you're describing and like whats your you're being honest and true to yourself and can also add that other part of like there's a part of me that's sort of fearful that if I have tough love on you, this like, this is going to go kind of sideways for you. Does that feel true for you? And just sort of being direct and honest with people. I mean, I think people can feel congruency. They can feel care and tough love if it's coming from a place that's like love. It's felt very differently than something that's critical or mean or suggests like I'm going to cut you off from my life if 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 you don't you know do this thing. That's very different. So when we talk about tough love, and oftentimes it is working families to be like this isn't mean. This is actually the most loving thing you could do for this person because to say nothing or to let them them continue on in a way where their life is just deteriorating, well, that would be horrible, right? So, like, to do nothing... would be very harmful. And so I I don't think, I mean, this is the hardest thing about um, severe mental illness is that we can try a lot, we can say a lot, we can do things we don't necessarily have control over what somebody's going to do with the feedback that we give them. Um, And there's risk too, There's There's definitely risk involved in doing some of those things. Um, And it doesn't always, you know, have a positive outcome to set boundaries and things like that. Um, And at the same time, um, I think being congruent is like most important.
1: And I think what you said earlier about rapport, like I think about some of the clients I've seen for the longest. I mean, I have relationships with these folks. I know these guys. You know these guys. Mm -hmm. Like, I I can tell. Like, and I can, because I have rapport, I always joke, like you've heard me say this in supervision, like I am sometimes surprised myself with how much I can get away with saying. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I have enough rapport where I know the person's going to be able to handle it, even if it's something like, I have a client, this literally just happened. I said, you sound like a crazy person right now. And she's like, I know, don't I? I said, You kind of do. Now, I wouldn't say that to everybody. And I, if I didn't have that kind of relationship with a different client, I'm not going to say that. That could be construed as like rude and very not PC, right? But with her, I can say it like, You're doing that thing right now, or you just, you kind of sound and look like a crazy person. Can you pull it together? And she'll be like, Okay, you know, and we, we move on. Mm-hmm. But if I were to say that to her, say, one afternoon, and she, she, she can't pull it together, or she, how, how dare you say that to me? Or she, re- you know, re- reacts in a way that's different than my experience of her typically, you know, that's going to be my discerning clue of like, okay, this might be something a little bit more than she's just, mm-hmm. you know, having a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I know her enough, or I know him enough to know like, oh, well, I kind of pulled the like, come on, pull, get, get your shit together. I know you can do this. And it works. And the times when it seems to not really be working, then it's just my clue that okay, there maybe is something a little bit more happening here. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna like change my approach a little bit, slow it down, and maybe ask more questions instead of say, hey, come on, get it together and move on. It might be like, so what's happening? Because well, you that- you seem different to me today than you did last week. What's going on? I might ask a little bit more mm-hmm. to see if more comes out. But the um, I think there's a place for both. I mean, people really, mm-hmm. expect especially people who are very disorganized internally, which you will will see more with psychosis, or just in a funk, in their depression, in their grief, whatever, whatever. Um, They need need actually like the scaffolding on the outside. Somebody to say, okay, you know what? You need to get up, go take a shower, brush your teeth, meet me in the kitchen in 15 minutes. Like that kind of direction Mm -hmm. actually helps gel some of the looseness that's happening internally when someone's really struggling. And then there's going to be times, hopefully, when that's not needed, that they can do that for themselves. Mm-hmm.
0: From a, this is sort of, a, I guess, parallel or at least adjacent to the social media stuff we were talking about, This, the idea that we did a podcast on social contagions, right, which is, and I think one of the best examples that I read about was bulimia. And when the first reported case of bulimia was in 1979 or something like this. I, I forget the dates, but... You know, this guy did or did a article about these girls who were making themselves sick. And there was, you know, three or four girls that he did this report on. And after that, like, the number of cases went completely through the roof. Um, same thing with uh, cutting. Like, uh, this happens with young females a lot. They cut themselves. But it'll spread through a, uh, through a community, through a friendship group of girls. Happens with suicide, you know, there's this thing where, and this this always scares me because, you know, doing a podcast like what we're doing today, and a lot of people are gonna listen to this, uh, when they put up anti-suicide for, or suicide help hotline numbers in a community, oftentimes the suicide rate increases because now it's putting it in their mind. How much do you, how much have you all seen of that in the last, you know, 10 years, and I guess it's maybe even less than that, seven years of, where so people are so connected to social media where, oh, you know what? Billy's depressed and he seems like he's got, getting a lot of attention for being a depressed. And I kind of, you know, I, I'm, I, I didn't have anything to do on Friday night. And so I'm probably not that popular. I'm actually going to be depressed too. How, how much is that impacting people? Because let's face it, you know, 100 years ago, people weren't talking about this. And so what were they doing? You know, like, oh, I'm depressed, but that's just the way I feel. And there's they didn't even have a name for it. So guess what they did? They went to work and they carried on. And maybe they didn't feel great, but they carried on. What what role is this total connectedness that we have? And, and, and you know, we all can't even compare to the, young, to the 15-year-olds that are connected like 100% mm-hmm. of the time that they're awake. They're connecting and being influenced by everyone else. In the world, what impact are you all seeing from that?
1: Yeah, I, it's substantial, and I think it is um, with the onset. I, in fact, I think it w- around like when smartphones mm. happened. Oh yeah, that's where I kind of, like the internet was already there. You could go online and look yeah. at a bunch of stuff, but at your fingertips. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now with um, you know Instagram and all the th- I mean, you're just con- constantly looking who's doing what, who's saying what, who's endorsing what, who's against what, and the the attachment to all of that, mm-hmm. um, and also the social disconnect, like from other human beings, mm-hmm. versus instead of having a conversation with you or asking you your opinion about something or going to you to talk about something that might be on my mind, I'm looking to see who, who's saying what and what are other people doing about it,
2: which is influencing my feed and all the things that are coming mm-hmm. up yeah, and what algorithm. I'm exposed. Like to how it. many? Like, I
1: didn't get as many likes mm-hmm. as you got. What does that mean about me? Um, mm-hmm. In addition to what you were saying earlier about like the self-diagnosing, oh, I read it, you know, how many times, especially with the adolescents I see. Mm-hmm. Oh, I read an article, I think I have OCD. Mm-hmm. In my mind, like, no, you don't, let's talk about that. Or, oh, I read an article and this is happening to me, so I think I might have stomach cancer. It's, we'll send you to the doctor if you want to have that checked out, but let's talk about your, uh, that you woke up with a stomach ache right? mm-hmm. because you have a job interview this afternoon that you kind of don't want to go to. Let's talk about that instead. But no, I looked online. I looked online. If you wake up with a stomachache, it means this. right? So th- this, uh, whether it's looking up symptoms and diagnoses or what this means or what other people are doing or what other people are saying about what other people are doing, it's just... Um it's like it's defined,
2: right? The, um, and it's,
0: it's self-diagnosis becomes yeah. self-fulfilling prophecy as Absolutely. well.
2: Well, and the person's, you know, what their their out their world outside of social media looks like, their family, how much they can, you know, cross-reference the things that they're seeing on there with like a parent who's telling them, like, mm, let's think about that. Let's let's walk that through. Like, if a depending on how much um, exposure they they have to that outside of that world is going to make a big difference in terms of the impact of being engrossed in the social media world because not all. Um, kiddos have a family who's willing to talk them through all the things that they're seeing on social media help them discern what they read these sorts of things so um, definitely a, a balance outside of that is is necessary to combat the influence uh, within social media
1: well then there's also the part of having things just available right right mm-hmm. now right now is um, like i think about when i went like growing up like there were no there were I didn't even. We didn't have an answering machine. Mm -hmm. Like if you wanted to call somebody, you called them, and if they were there, they would pick up, and if they weren't, they didn't. Like that was it. You called them back later. Mm -hmm. There was no texting. Like there was no this immediacy. So thinking about not having that immediate gratification, I and people in my generation and people who didn't have access to some of these things developed. patience and tolerance Mm. skills. Like I could wait, even if I really, really, really want to talk to you, like I can, I can wait and not fall apart. I had a a client Well, I still see her, but when she was younger, um, her her parents are fantastic. She is like very self-diagnose, has no tolerance for delayed gratification or patience because everything, right? Everything is a, an immediate answer. If she, if I text you and you have not, if I see the dots and then you don't Get back to me, like you know, this kind of thing. So she did something and got herself in trouble. So her parents took her phone. She said, if you take my phone, I am going to kill myself. I can't not have my phone. They put her in the car and took her to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the most brilliant thing ever. And, of course, by the time they walk in, she's like, never mind. I won't kill myself. I'll, I'll give my phone back whenever you want to give it to me. But it was that instant, like, I can't, I can't live. Like, I, I cannot not have my phone. And she has no... Emotional, like at the time, like no emotional management skills. How old? She was probably fifteen or sixteen at this point, like old enough. Um, But I think about all the parents that would be like, oh, oh my, okay, never, never mind. Yeah, right. And so now you just reinforced that if you're upset or you don't think you can handle something, just I'll make it easy for you, so that. A delay of gratification, managing anxiety, um, tolerating waiting. And then what do you do, right? Like if I want to talk to you and you're not answering the phone, um, I'm not going to just like sit there. Like right now people sit there, right? They sit on their phone versus like you go do something to manage your anxiety or your distress at not being able to talk to your person. Like we, like I grew up with that. People um, nowadays, they're in a lot of ways are lacking in those skills of just managing their feelings because they don't have
0: to. Have you heard the expression left on red? Have yes. you ever heard of this? Yes. Mm-mm. So yeah, it's when my kids
1: talk about yeah,
2: it. Yeah.
0: So it's when you're you know, I send you a message, Carlin, uh-huh. and I get a thing that says you read it? Yeah. But oh. you don't respond to me, mm-hmm. so you just left me on. You read it, but you don't respond oh to me. Oh my god, it's
2: devastating. I've never heard it. about it's it. a Cata- it's catastrophic. <laughs> yeah, it's to, a for one to not get an immediate response and then to be left on read is like you might as well have been canceled. Is the other term. Ooh.
0: So, so this stuff is going to impact people. I mean, that's Absolutely. an impact psychologically. Yes, clearly, because we're just expecting everyone to maintain connection all the time and soothe mm-hmm.
1: me when, like, when I'm upset. You need to reply, mm-hmm. so I don't have anxious feelings.
0: And the social media companies are creating these things. Like TikTok is created to be as addictive as possible, as oh humanly gosh, possible. Right. So it's immediate gratification 100% of the time. It's like boom 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 mm-hmm. and you can't put that thing down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a nightmare, isn't it?
2: Well, and you see it show up a lot in folks coming into work, younger ages, between 20 to 24, and you, you, you referred to a lot as like being entitled, right? You hear this term entitlement thrown a lot, like this generation is entitled, mm-hmm. entitlement and such. But when you really uh, look at what's going on, um, there's very poor distress tolerance mm-hmm. skills. Like if there's something I need to wait on, or I'm waiting for an answer from my manager for something, or, you know, something needs to change. It clearly needs to grow in the organization, but, um, you know, it's taking some time to work through. These things, like there's an immediate sort of um, narrative that something must be wrong, that this is a really negative thing. People don't care about me, or whatever that person goes through, and their poor distress tolerance, and it creates all kinds of issues. And then if I can't tolerate it, well, what do I do? I just leave, or I check out, or stop caring about what Quit. I'm doing, or you know, I, I can justify misusing company resources or not really using my time. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things that come from it. But at the core, um, at, at least I'm, I'm not an expert on this at all. But it's just a very poor distress tolerance mm-hmm. and watching my kids work through some of that stuff where if you know uh, someone didn't reply to them like they like it felt sort of catastrophic and helping them think through like what could possibly be some other options <laughs> as to why someone might not have responded and usually a few days later it's like oh it's everything everything's school, mom so and so got their phone taken away so oh okay so that's why they didn't respond to you you know and <laughs> your
0: kids are freaking out <laughs> and thinking that's the end of the world
2: something yeah. bad is happening for sure yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. um can we talk through some mental health issues? I got—I I read through a bunch of these: um, anxiety disorder, fear, and dread.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What's a What's a cause for that?
2: And there's so many potential yeah. causes for that, but I mean, ultimately, it's a it's a state in which you're sort of. Um, uh, assuming or maybe anticipating that something very negative is going to happen, right? Um, I have this, I uh, will just use a job interview coming up, and you know, I, I really need this job, but I'm definitely going to say something wrong and I'm going to trip up. I mean, it just can sort of uh, roll in that direction with a person's thoughts in a lot of ways, um, and then in their body can feel sick, sick to my stomach look like somatic symptoms. so people express it in a lot of different ways. Some you'll see a lot of thoughts mm-hmm. related to it that are, are very sort of negative and anticipating something sort of horrible is going to happen or not work out well. And in some ways for, for some people it's very physical. They're sick all the time or often getting a cold or you know they' you know these sorts of things so um, and it's
1: like a chain so right if a, so job interview right? Like, well, I don't know. What if I say the wrong thing? What if they ask me a question that I don't know? Well, what if they don't like me? What if I don't get the job? What, like, what if? What if, it's the, that kind of chaining mm-hmm. together. So next thing you know, like, I, I might as well just not even. I, I might as well kill myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can go. It yeah. can go in a lot of different ways. But the um, this like persistent worry and anticipation that is not um, proportionate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm to the situation like it's it's one thing to have some nervousness i have this big job interview i really want this job i hope they like me i'm a little bit mm-hmm. you know, like my stomach hurts a little bit that, that's one thing but that disproportion um, and that chaining together of all of the like things that could potentially happen.
3: Well, so, mm-hmm.
1: go ahead. I would just say it's like
2: the difference too between I think most of us experience some level of anxiety around things. It can actually be really helpful, right? right? Help me to prepare for something. But when it gets to the aspect of sort of clinically significant, it's interfering in such a way that now I just called out of my job interview, or I'm choosing not to go, or I I, I, I couldn't I could even bring myself to study because I was so anxious mm-hmm. about the potential exam, and so it becomes almost. Um, uh, self-sabotaging in some ways as, as, as we move towards like a clinically significant version of that. Mm-hmm.
0: So what is treatment like for someone that's in that zone? I haven't been out of my house. Uh, I didn't get the job. I didn't go to the job interview. I actually haven't even applied for any jobs. I'm, you know, just getting by on whatever savings I had and maybe starting to get some welfare checks because I'm just freaked out. Because, I, So I, I, what, what are you saying to me? How do we talk someone through that?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, um, well, I know we were talking about this before recording, that um, when somebody is that uh, kind of agitated and in distress, the front part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part we use for like weighing pros and cons and anticipating outcomes and Kind of making decisions and thinking things through is almost like not available. It's almost offline. You can think about it like it got knocked offline because my nervous system is a wreck. So the person really can't make really good decisions when they're that um, kind of escalated. So treatment will like undoubtedly, no matter what, include helping a person learn skills and techniques to like calm their, like literally calm their physical body down. It doesn't. I always tell people, you don't have to be calm. That would be lovely. But you don't have to be calm. You just have to be calm enough for your brain. What are some techniques you know.
0: you're going to teach somebody?
1: It could be like deep breathing techniques, meditation, grounding. Um, physical activity is really, really helpful for a yeah. dysregulated body. <laughs> like walking, running, jumping, mm-hmm. you, swimming, yoga, oh. pilates, whatever. Physical activity. Because it's a, it's a physical manifestation of the anxiety. So you got to get the body to be able to relax enough for the brain to come online. So now once the brain is more available, mm-hmm. now we got to go through all that, cogn- that cognitive distortion, this idea that like, if you don't get this job, you're a horrible person. Mm-hmm. Like, let's let's talk about uh-huh. how realistic that uh-huh. is. Or if you don't get this job, it means that you're never going to get a job for the rest of your life. Well, let's look at that. So cogn- like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive techniques mm-hmm. will address some of those um, really kind of extreme escalated Mm -hmm. thoughts. So you need both. I mean, most um, mental health and illness issues are going to require both. But for anxiety, you really need both, the physical and the cognitive.
0: Um, as I was reading through this I ended up with these personality disorders coming into these different um, categories cluster A, cluster B and cluster C, cluster A is just, they had some subtitles here cluster A was odd, yep, odd. cluster B was dramatic <laughs> and cluster C was anxious and I was like yep. well the, you could kind of like the stereotypical categories of people you know that guy's weird right that guy's it's an odd, odd guy mm-hmm. um, someone that's paranoid Paranoid is one of the things in Cluster A, odd. Paranoid, always on guard. Believe people are trying to ha- harm them. Um, schizoid, hmm. which I didn't really know the definition of. Schizoid is people that avoid people and relationships. So tell me about paranoid. Well, me, give me a case. Let me let me redefine mm-hmm. re- that. Let me hear a case. I want to hear some case studies of paranoid. It's so funny. Hey, um, you know, the black helicopters are out there flying around.
1: Yeah. Well you know what you said earlier actually about like a person who might already be a little bit say maybe predisposed to like conspiracy mm-hmm. right so with personality disorders it's it's not it's more like a part of your, per- like I can be a shy person, and, which means I'm probably going to be shy like across the board, right? Mm-hmm. Not just in one or two situations. Mm-hmm. So with personality disorders, it's one of those like kind of in most situations you're going to see. So paranoid it might be not the, the helicopters are chasing me. That, that's probably you're more in the um, psychotic, right. psychosis realm there. Personality disorders might be just kind of a general paranoia like, well, or you know, every time I go to work... Especially. Um I say hi to the girl at the desk and she says and say hi to me. I think she doesn't like me. She probably XYZ. Like a like a a leaning or a mm-hmm. disposition to thinking mm-hmm. it, people don't like me. I think people are watching me. I think somebody went into my locker and took something out, I think. You know, I found it at home later that night. But like yeah. my my predisposition is paranoid versus psychosis, which is gonna be the helicopters are chasing mm-hmm. me and the, the lights are secretly you know, filming me.
0: The uh, You know, I, I mentioned that thing earlier where, where I said, I told people on my uh, training course, like, hey, we're all insane. We're all some level of insane because reality looks different. These things are the same too. Like everyone's got some level of paranoia and you can see it come out of people. You know, got that person, you know, I work with leaders a lot and you know, a leader that might be like, well, I'm never gonna get promoted. Oh, why is that? Oh, they don't like me. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a level of paranoia that's, and it's usually because, well, actually, you're not getting promoted because you failed on your last two mm-hmm. projects. has nothing to do with them not liking you. you. You're not performing well. But of course, for them, it's, they don't like me. Why don't they like you? Well, because I used to work at this other company, and that guy worked there, and yeah. they don't like that guy, and so therefore, they don't like me. So like all these things, and anxiety, you know, right? We, we talk about, you, you just mentioned, Megan's like, a certain level of anxiety is mm-hmm. good, so it's okay. Hey, I'm nervous about this job interview because I really wanna get the job, so I'm there am going to research the company, I'm gonna be prepared well, I'm gonna go over some notes, I'm gonna be ready, that's cool, that's great. So everyone has some level of these things going on, it's just when we start to let them spiral and get out of control, that's when we have problems. Um. So, cluster A, we're acting a little strange. Cluster B, dramatic. Which is this also known as teenage years? A little bit. <laughs> well,
2: oftentimes, with some of that, you'll find you know some form of an attachment disruption or something happening during that time period that leads to some of this in more mm-hmm. adult life, where we're looking at like a pattern of unstable relationships or um, sort of this real or imagined fear of abandonment that leads me to sort of be dramatic if that's what you the word you want to use in relationships and such in response to a perception that I might be losing you a lot of push-pull these sorts of things but I think we can find often in this group that there's some something that happened in the attachment that led to this disposition for
0: What, what kind of thing is happening
2: I mean, it can be a wide variety of things. It can be various levels of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. It could be a very uh, misattuned parent or maybe not having somebody who could reflect back to you at a young age, mirroring sort of like, um, you know, I feel uh, sad or I feel afraid. It's sort of normal to feel that way instead of like, don't feel that way or there's something wrong with you for feeling that way. And I start to build these beliefs where I, I sort of lose touch with my map for like an appropriate emotional response to what's happening. Um, you can kind of find that disruption. And sometimes with when you're looking at a personality disorder, something has been so severe that now it is part of the personality um, in some ways. And so you can shape it and kind of uh, do some things with the volume of it. But that disposition might always be there to be sort of like, you know, someone, my friend canceled, you know, dinner on me again, they they must really not like me or must not be important to them, as opposed to like, maybe there's something else going Mm -hmm. on for them as to why they canceled dinner. Um, But it really does feel that traumatic to the person. And I think that's a really important part of working with someone with a personality disorder is is recognizing that while it might look sort of irrational and you're like, what's going on for them? It feels very real. So this piece of like, how do I calm down the body enough to bring the, the brain online to be able to just consider what else might be possible um, is a super important part of uh, helping somebody through that. And you can see with time, with like an appropriate level of support and period of time and multiple reparative experiences and relationships where the thing that I feared didn't actually happen, that that some of this can calm down a little bit.
1: You'll see, especially in what's considered cluster B, Um, people who have been Adopted, given up for adoption early on, or or in a way that was uh, left them for some period of time without kind of a secure, like a parent or authority attachment. Um, Clients who, uh, like I have one client who is, she's the the definition of that, was um, neglected, like severely neglected when she was a child. So this anxiety of like being left or not being wanted, or being um, some like picking somebody other than her, like this felt sense of rejection mm-hmm. is so profound. It almost it's like her Colors, lenses. Everything. It just it's like her in her experience in the world with other people is always through this lens of like, do you like me? Are you going to pick me? Um, do, like, am I am I safe? Can I rely on you? Can I trust you? so it, these are they can be rough
0: is this uh, one of these things was called histrionic histrionic personality disorder which in one of the categories and there was desire to be noticed
1: mm-hmm.
0: this is a similar thing where i just want people to see that i'm here
1: well and you know what i would say and i, I say this a lot clinically too is this idea that like um oh that, that person she's like seeking attention she's attention seeking that's a very common right term that's used and um but often used in like a um,
3: judgmental.
1: De- judgmental derogatory way i would say like oh they're absolutely seeking attention but not because they're just being like you know, irritating, it's something is going on for this person internally that they like literally need you Mm. to stop and like, pay attention to me. So I can something inside of me settles down. down. Now, this is a huge dysregulation, right? So this is where, um, in terms of therapy and treatment comes in is helping people learn how to regulate their body, and like calm some of that agitation down, and then do all the cognitive work of helping like, reality check like right kind of sort through some of these big extreme thoughts that i have to like are they really that realistic and then like you have said a couple times megan the reparative experiences like Mm -hmm. um you know how many times did you think like i have a client who for the longest time she would show up like 15 20 minutes early to her session because she had this idea that what if she's not out there at the time of our session and i forget we had a session and i leave (laughs) Which, first of all, would never, ever happen in a million years, ever. But, like, this was the one who grew up with a lot of neglect, grew up with parents saying, oh, yeah, I'll be home home in a few hours, and they didn't come home or they forgot about her, right? So you can see where, like, the early stuff shaped this. But a lot of our work was – it wasn't just, like, saying, hey, we've had 72 sessions and I've been here every time, like – isn't that enough? That wasn't not enough for her. Like she needed to really go through the experience of not relying on me to be there on time, so that she felt better. She had to learn how to do that for herself. It's that external scaffolding versus the internal.
0: And was she able to?
1: Yep, totally. She's great. I still see her. She's great.
0: You still see her, mm-hmm. but she, but it's more like just checking in.
1: Yeah, and it's more like maintenance. I see her once or twice a month. I used to see her two, three times a week, because because the level of distress and interference. In her life, like she couldn't work, her relationships were a mess, she was on all these medication. I mean, she had a really, really messy life because this is how she lived it. This is how she approached almost every relationship she had in her mm-hmm. world. So now, like, she's working, she's got kids, she's tra- She just got back from, like, I don't know, Bali or something. I don't know. She went with her husband. Mm-hmm. Like, her life is great. So things are good. It, so it's a, it's a little maintenance, like, kind of maintenance, yep. car, yeah. car maintenance. Um, yep. I'm just getting her, The mechanic stills got to change those occasionally.
0: Yeah, it's weird because all these things are. Peop- everyone listening can be like, "Oh yeah, I, I, a bit of that. That. I have a little bit of that. Uh-huh. I have a little bit of that. I have a little bit of this." Well, another one in this category was narcissistic,
3: mm-hmm.
0: which you know when when we work with leaders. You know, a lot of times people that end up in leadership positions, they end up in leadership positions oftentimes because they were stepping up and they thought they could do the job. And if you can think you can do the job, that means you got a little bit of ego working and if you got a little bit of ego working, sometimes that ego can start to expand beyond your own control and you end up sometimes with people that are narcissistic and what does that look like from like a clinical perspective?
2: I mean, I think when you, you talk about this uh, from like a clinical where you're ending up in treatment, it it, it moves into a place where you have, um, you lose sight of, uh, I don't know if empathy is the right word, or like my impact on other people, like my focus becomes so much on like where I'm at. my. My my vision, whatever I have going on, and, and somehow along the way I lost sight of like what I do uh, impacts other people, and like my behavior has an impact on other people. And so that's on the very severe end. And I think when you're looking at the actual disorder itself, that word is thrown around a lot for sure. Um, but uh, where we've seen it often really looks like this person uh, has uh, becomes significantly self focused um, and really lose sight of how their behavior impacts other people. Mm-hmm.
0: And they just don't care about anybody else.
2: It, it would appear that <laughs> way. I mean, I think what's really happening so much is that there's the, the, the ego cannot tolerate any sort of feedback mm-hmm. that would suggest, like, wow, I, I might have hurt someone when I did that. Like, it, it's just so vulnerable. Like, it's actually this person, while they might appear like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter to them, they're actually so sensitive and vulnerable that they've built up so many defenses mm-hmm. in their psyche to not allow for any sort of feedback to crack through an idea of, like, oh, in fact, I could potentially fail. Or in mm-hmm. fact, like I could, uh, I do have the potential to hurt someone. It's like um, become so distorted in a way that they, they can't even see that as a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so then I come across in my behaviors and such as very disregarding of others. Um, these uh, uh, A person with a narcissist personality is very easily wounded with your words. They're not the person that you can give that sort of direct feedback to. They're so wounded, um, uh, the, almost catastrophic to the relationship sometimes to be able to give feedback. Mm-hmm.
1: And what what you will see, uh, as opposed to some of the other personality disorder, like histrionic, borderline, and they're easily, easily wounded with words, very, mm-hmm. very sensitive, but you're going to see somebody kind of melt down and cry. And oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that to me. You know, like, like kind of, Collapse a little bit with narcissism. Lash out, lash out, and mm-hmm. like cut you off. Out, gone. Yep. I like can just cannot tolerate like kind of being challenged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, uh, Cluster C, which is which is anxious. This is when you get in the OCD, mm-hmm. the the obsessive compulsive. Let me hear a wild OCD story. Oh boy.
1: <laughs> Let's see. I don't know if I have a good one. To go. Well, I. I I mean, several, and I think, th- th- like we said before, there's people can have like kind of traits and like leanings and inclinations, and that's one thing versus it being at a like a clinically clinically significant level where like your life, you're like you're having a hard time living your life. Mm-hmm. So somebody who's a little bit more um, extreme might be like OCD might be say a germs. Right? Mm-hmm. So they don't. I uh, don't want to touch doorknobs, shake hands, use public restrooms. Um, How they fare
0: during um during COVID?
1: Mm, they loved it. A lot oh, because they were just this like so oh, much social distancing. Control. I don't have to touch anybody, and you, world, to, and, and you have And you have to it. wear a mask in front of me. Sure. Yes. Yep. Loved. They were stoked. Loved. 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 Those Ooh. are the ones that are going to have a lot harder time it's socially engaging, um, t- taking risks. Right, like the idea of like. Well, the only restroom here is a public room, and you gotta go in there or hold it. Like you know, like th- th- that's going to be very distressing for somebody that leans a little bit more towards um, obsessive, uh, obsessions and compulsions. Yeah.
0: Well, what did COVID look like? Because oh. I've done a couple podcasts about deaths of despair during COVID. It's a mm-hmm. nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, w- from your professional perspective, how bad was it? Oh
2: my god. I mean, it was it was significant Still. because, I mean, already, especially when you're working with very complex psychiatric disorders, resources and, like, access to hospitals and such is, is always sort of an issue for our folks because, you know, there is certain criteria related to being able to get hospital support. Somebody has to be very sort of significantly regressed to be able to get hospital support if they need that, and there oftentimes isn't um, that level of care that allows for that, like, sort of least restrictive setting in order to be able to support them um, outside of the hospital. So does that
0: mean that in order for me to go and get help, I needed to be in really bad shape? which means I'm in really bad shape. Well,
2: and that's in general for folks with mental illness. You need to be a danger to yourself or others and meet criteria, like significantly be a danger to yourself or others to be able to get that, you know, kind of inpatient hospitalization, unless you're willing to go on your own, which oftentimes when someone is in that state, they, they, they might not be. Um, so then with COVID, obviously access to resources and beds became significantly less. Then you have a significant more isolation, which is a huge risk factor for our folks. Isolation undoubtedly will um, increase, you know, symptoms of psychosis, depression, anxiety, um, because, you know, when I go inside my head and I have this internal site of isolation, a lot can happen. And so just being in contact with other people, making eye contact with you, these things, they're like grounding to the person. So all of that is impacted. And then how we had to do therapy shifted significantly. I mean, we moved from a residential setting where we're seeing people in person, we're going to outings together, we're meeting in groups together to like, now I'm doing uh, over the computer with you with somebody who um, may have some significant psychosis around So they're not even going to get on the camera with you. So it just really impacted our ability to provide care during that time. And people responded, I think, um, you know, I can't speak for all settings, but, uh, you know, uh, as b- best as they could during that time to be able to provide services and such and maintain the level of services that people needed. Um, it was a, definitely a really difficult time. Um, and, you know, telehealth is a super great option. It's not the best option for every client, you know, that in-person um is so important and a lot of times for our folks because uh, a lot of talk therapy is very cognitive and if you're working with someone with a cognitive disorder or a thought disorder you know oftentimes your sessions look like going for a walk or um, baking a pie together or like something of that nature that really like we couldn't do so much during that time or if we did it was you know, an increased risk to the person and their health, especially during the time of COVID, where we didn't really know too much about, right, what was happening, and all these regulations came in, and like you had to have all this distance and couldn't do these mm-hmm. things. Um, it uh, it impacted impacted a lot. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think um, also seeing, especially for people who are seemed like in that age range, like maybe middle school going into high school, like right somewhere Mm -hmm. in there where a lot of social things are happening, like your life is kind of socially driven, your friends, access to your friends, what everybody else is doing, you're growing up, maybe starting to think about college, things like that, where there was this instant, you know, kind of a halt, and people were not going to school and having to do their classes online and not seeing their friends. So I saw a lot, especially in the younger population, almost a... um, like an arrested development of, of social development. So now, like, yeah, and I have clients who are 20, 21, 22, but you're talking to them, and you're like, wow, you really sound like 16 right. or 17 years old right now. Like, they kind uh-huh. of stalled out in the natural progression. I mean, my, my niece and my nephew, um, one was graduating college, and one was graduating high school right when COVID happened, so, like, that May or whatever. So, like, no graduations, no... You know the pomp and circumstance that comes with these uh, milestones and, and rites of passage in life. They didn't have those. Um, they seemed to fare okay. But I think about all the folks that, like, well, what did that mean for their lives? Or um, the sense of missing out on something important and not having had the same opportunities. And I saw a lot of anxiety, a lot mm. of anxiety, depression, yes. isolation. Fear, so much fear. We were, I, Actually, I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about um, how people, like, remember when we were able like going to the grocery store mm-hmm. like you know everyone's like head down and you're like not looking at anybody right. and don't like, get too close Stop to my car like contact. it was very like weird and this like that <laughs> stayed like the people weren't like oh hey how's it going nice to see you I haven't seen mm-hmm. you in a couple months and give you a hug I was I mean, like that for,
0: I was like that for about three days yeah. and i was <laughs> and like dude this, I'm this is going to the store this, yeah, yeah. This, this is an, but an, it is still
1: like that I mean some of that is still happening it, so the fear so when again going back to that nervous system thing right so if people's fear is up here and I'm constantly on alert and watching and waiting and who's wearing their mask and who isn't When you're not on the dot in the grocery store like people are not using their brains mm-hmm. like they're not using these the part of the brain that can be like okay it's chill it's cool we're fine we're good mm-hmm. Because you're you're keyed up all the time. I think that is still happening. Sure, we have not seen the end of the effect of that. Well, and
2: those who had a propensity towards anxiety prior were struggling through some of that. I mean, significant more damage. And then you saw it happen when there was the decision of could we take the masks on or off? And those who chose to keep it on, and those who didn't. You know, it was very interesting when you would listen to folks' perspective on that. But oftentimes it felt, um, especially for some of the younger kids, like protective to have that over the face in some ways. interesting impact
0: man that's um that's crazy uh w- what about addiction and it's funny because like you can get addicted to anything apparently mm-hmm. right like people get addicted to anything but alcohol opioids cocaine amphetamines hallucinogens um pcp cat like people it's crazy anything and everything
1: tick tock tick tock mm-hmm.
0: Uh, let's jump to, um, PTSD. So, uh, you know, obviously in the veteran community, PTSD has been a huge, uh, news story and it's had a really big impact on, you know, on a lot of people. Um, sometimes I think, well, some people could actually use that kick in the ass that I talked about earlier. Like, Hey dude, yeah, you you saw some bad stuff. You lost some friends, but it's time to move on. Um, and I think some some people need that sort of direction uh, I mean look we've been going to wars since the beginning of mankind. I mean and You know you look at the other wars that we've been through in America World War one World War two Korea Vietnam these were Incredibly horrific wars as all wars are um, When 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 you guys look at PTSD, what do you think um from a from like a national perspective of where it's at, how it's being handled, do you think it's being handled the right way? What could we do better? I mean, you were out there freaking with a in a in a foxhole with a pistol and a scorpion.
2: <laughs> no, but you should write a, I should write a book. That's the <laughs> book title right yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, i mean I'm definitely I'm not a public health expert. I don't have the national kind of response to some of this I mean what I'll what I'll say in my private practice specifically to veterans is that um whether sort of real or imagined, the, the military or armed forces in general is doing a lot to try to address providing resources, early intervention, um, when traumatic events occur, um, having people on site who are trained to be able to help support. I mean, there's a lot that's happening. Uh, but stigma, the notion of stigma um, is, is still very present with regard to what it means to have mental health issues. And so I often have both active duty and veterans find me in my private practice knowing that I um, – Uh, was previous military. I think they feel a draw to me in that way, in that history that I'm a safe person coming to me um, because it doesn't in that environment, uh, feel safe just yet to be able to talk openly about what's going on for me um, because of I mean I think there's two really primary themes which look like um, privacy like will what I have to share stay private to me or if I talk about this will my medical officer then know and now my CO knows and now if somebody's having a talk with me about something I shared um, or um this notion of retaliation in some ways, because somebody heard a story from somebody that they told someone they had depression, they were put on antidepressant, now they took my wings, which is like my whole identity. So whether these things are actually happening, it's still very much so part of the culture or suggestion of like, is it safe to, to like talk about these things? And so I think from that perspective, in terms of what we can do is uh, it's, it's amazing all of the resources that are being created and opportunities. I just recently read about, like, it's referred to as the sprint team, but it's essential. It's it's a special psychiatric unit as part of the, the armed forces where they come on site in response to like a trauma or something. It's very awesome, but engagement in the resource is still a really important factor, especially for veterans who disengage from like use of VHA services or anything like that. So like getting people to engage and like, I, You know what we know about engagement in general is that like that initial response to someone's willingness and we talked about this earlier to disclose or talk about what's going on for them um, is critical because it's going to shape whether or not they feel they can do that Um, and so I think engagement is huge both in the active duty and veteran realm and what we see with a lot of veterans and why they usually end up finding me in private practice not part of their insurance or anything like that is the privacy factor but also um, You know, when you're separating from the military, part of your access to resources and disability and these sorts of things is directly connected to your service record, what was disclosed while you were in the military. And so if I'm in a culture, real or imagined, or in my mind, I feel like this is not a place where I can talk about these things. So I've chosen not to. I've sort of white-knuckled it. I've gotten through. I haven't shared a whole lot. Here I am as a veteran looking towards trying to get some services or disability, or maybe now I'm realizing I'm no longer in the structure of that military environment and so all this stuff is coming up for me that maybe the structure of that environment sort of kept at bay and I'm being told well there's there's nothing here to suggest in your record that anything significant happened to you so you have to kind of Convince me in some ways as to why you should get this disability percentage, or why you should be treated for these. And the way it's looked at is based on you know PTSD or um, uh, everything is broken down in parts. Your back is one part. Your PTSD, your mental health is one part. Your your arm is one part of that, and they're all looked at differently in that way. And so it puts a veteran in a position where they have to sort of now prove in some ways that they are deserving of this disability can be very re-traumatizing for someone who's maybe never shared about something that happened in the sexual assault or um, something that happened to me while I was deployed or something that's sort of embarrassing or I hold a lot of shame about because I haven't really dealt with. Now I'm in this position where I have to sort of recount all this. I have to get these um, character references for these things that happen to sort of prove that I'm worthy of this disability, which then opens me up to these like resources in some ways. And so that part um, you know what we can do, sort of like as a leader in an initial response to somebody. You know, sailor coming to tell us something that's going on. Um, how we react in that moment is huge because it's going to set the precedent for whether or not that person is going to reengage. Should something be going on for them, or if it's a safe place to talk about the things that are going on. So. I mean, to answer your question a long way around, I don't know about nationally, like, what we're doing, if it's the right thing to do. But I do know, like, engagement mm-hmm. and all of the resources that are being put out there is um, still an issue. And I, I read something from the the uh, Navy, like, it was like a 2021 study around veteran suicide rates and all of these different things. And the suicide rate daily for those individuals who were engaged with the VHA was less than those who were not, right? So, um Engagement uh, is a a really important factor, and how do we keep people doing that? Well, I think um, making sure that we understand how important privacy is to someone who's dealing with something like this, um, and um, what the fear of retaliation—like, will you take something that's important to me? Will you take my wings? Like, will you—you know—that you know these are people's full identity. You know, will will I lose my—will I lose my my status, my spot as part of this group that I've been so connected to? Um, I see this a lot in folks coming through, and um, you know, special operations or things like that. Like they're more likely to seek services, in my experience, outside of um, the military, okay. out of fear of those two things.
0: Yeah, I got uh, being aware of what's going on in the world is such an advantage. And my basic example of that is if if you came to my house and I said, hey. I'm gonna scare you when you walk down the hallway, and then you walk down the hallway, and I jumped out and said, "Boo!" You wouldn't be scared at all <laughs> if you, if I didn't tell you that, and you came walking down my house, and I jumped out of the you know out of the doorway and screamed at you. You'd be scared because that's what would happen. So being aware of what's going on just makes you so much more prepared for it. So I realized, and um, working with fighters and being in combat, you'd see like a new guy that was on his first deployment and you'd see him before an operation and you'd see he's really nervous Mm -hmm. and you know maybe feels like a little bit sick to his stomach he's gone to the bathroom four times in the last 20 minutes and you're like oh yeah he's he's got a little bit of that a little bit of those nerves Mm -hmm. going and you say something to him like hey man yeah that's the fourth time you go to the bathroom are you all right they're like i'm fine and you're like hey dude it's fine Mm -hmm. like you're nervous you might get killed Mm -hmm. it's no big deal to be a little bit nervous and i go oh okay Okay, it's okay. It's okay that you're nervous. You should be nervous. If you're not nervous, there's something wrong with you. And then, so I took that and I actually used it when I was training mixed martial arts fighters, because they the same thing would happen. They they'd be going, you know, the night of the UFC or a few hours before. They're all nervous. You could see that they're nervous, but they don't know what it is. They don't know why they feel sick. So they think there's something wrong with them. So now they're now now they're freaking out. So you go, oh, you're hey, you just went to the bathroom for the ninth time in the last half an hour you feeling a little nervous and they go, oh, no, no, I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> hey, what's wrong with you is you're getting ready to go into combat, you're getting ready to take some chances and that's your body getting ready, mm-hmm. getting rid of it, all the stuff it doesn't need right now so it can focus on fighting. This is good.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And they think, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So that's what normal is. It's okay to feel like that. I had a guy on my, on my podcast named Tom Fife who was in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam and he got a Purple Heart in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And I was asking him, he was a battalion commander in Vietnam. And, uh, and so this was, you know, it had been 55 or 60 years since he was in Vietnam. And I was asking him about, you know, what type of operations they were doing. And then I started asking him about what kind of casualties he took in his battalion. And as he started to address that, he started getting choked up talking about it. And I remember I'm sitting there thinking it's been 60 years for this guy and he was a battalion commander and he lost guys And he still gets choked up about it, and because that ha- that'll happen to me I'll be talking to someone about some of the guys that I lost and I'll get choked up and I said to myself Oh, this is just the way it is and it's normal mm-hmm. and it's okay And I think that's a huge part that we missed out on and that we have missed out on is someone going oh I'm sad there must be something wrong with me, mm-hmm. and it's like, no, you're sad. You lost your friend, mm-hmm. and you lost your friend, and now you feel sad, and that's what's that's what you're gonna feel like. Mm-hmm. And over time, it'll dissipate a little bit, and then it might come back. You know, that's another uh, thing that I talked about. I talked about losing people and what you go through, and what what, and I, and I went through this big dramatic um, description of being caught in a storm, and when you lose someone, when someone, when one of your friends dies you're gonna be hit with emotions that you can't control. And we as adults, we're not used to not being able to control our emotions anymore. That happens when you're, when you're five years old. It shouldn't happen when I'm 40. So my friend dies, all of a sudden I get hit with these emotions, I'm not in control anymore, and I don't like that feeling, and I think there must be something wrong with me. It's like, no, actually, this is what's normal. You're getting hit with these emotions, but guess what? Eventually those, wave, those waves of emotions will go away, and you'll have a break. Okay, so then you think, okay, well then I'm fine. But then you get hit randomly, you see something, you hear a song, you smell something, you drive by whatever restaurant, and you get hit with that emotion again. You don't notice this, but it's not quite as strong. And there's been a little space. And over time, the, the, the strength of the emotional waves starts to lessen. And this is what I, I learned this for myself because I experienced it a bunch of times. And by the sixth or seventh or eighth time I was saying, Oh yeah, this is that emotion that I'm gonna feel right now, and I don't can't control it, and I'm gonna sit here and cry, and then I'm gonna stop, and then twenty minutes later I'm gonna be laughing, mm-hmm. and that'll seem fine. it'll seem like I'm okay, but then a week later I'll get hit with this other emotion again, with this sadness, and it'll knock me knock me down. But it's gonna lessen over time and it's gonna dissipate. So I think a lot of this is people don't people don't understand what's normal Mm -hmm. and I think that everything I just said is totally normal Mm -hmm. and now that I've told that to a bunch of people yeah this is what you're gonna feel they've been like that's exactly what I felt and and so getting the word out about yeah oh yeah you're gonna feel sad this doesn't mean you're depressed it means you're sad Mm -hmm. your friend died like that's a horrible thing but it's okay to feel sad and it's okay in a little while it'll dissipate that's another thing people get caught up in is oh the f- strong emotions that I had are now dissipating. Mm. I must be, I didn't really care about him, or I'm, I'm a bad person. because No, you're just processing it, and you're moving through this thing. So I think a lot of just the, you know, w- what you were talking about earlier, Carlin, of just not talking about things, mm-hmm. and I've been very lucky, and, I, and this is another thing I noticed about loss is when I would lose one of my friends, Oftentimes, I would be the person that would be giving a speech or one of the people that would be writing down my feelings about the situation, about who this person was, about what they meant to me, about how awesome they were. I'd, I'd have to go through that drill, mandatory, because you're gonna get up and you're gonna talk, you're gonna give a eulogy or one of the eulogies at someone's funeral, someone's memorial service, so that's what you're doing. What a cathartic thing that turned out to be. Then I end up, when I get out of the Navy, I end up writing books. And oftentimes, these things are addressed in the books. And being on this podcast or going out and speaking to groups of people, guess what I'm doing? I'm telling a story over and over again. Mm -hmm. The same story about the same situation. And each time you tell it, you go, okay, you process it. And it moves you further down that road. And it helps you detach from it, not in a bad way, but in a good way where you can be truly appreciative of the friend that you lost and say, yeah, it's horrible, but guess what? I had some good times. We had some great times. We had some incredible times and I'm going to live a good life and not forget about them, but I'm not going to dwell on the fact that they died. And by the way, guess what that means? That means I'm going to die too. And everyone I know is going to die. And I, I, I can't get caught up and dwell on that fact for so long. So it seems like those are the kind of things that I think we could do better is letting people understand what they're going through, letting them understand that it's normal. Mm-hmm. It's normal. It's normal to be like, oh yeah, oh, well, what's wrong with Jocko, he just heard a song and he's gonna go over there and cry for like eight minutes mm-hmm. and just, then he's gonna be okay. And, and Jocko's not embarrassed by it, it's like, oh yeah, this song freaking bums me out sometimes. Okay, well, Mm -hmm. that's not abnormal. You lost one of your best friends. Okay, well, it's gonna be sad sometimes. And I I think that's one thing that we can do better, and I try and do that as much as I can when when we talk about these things on this podcast. Um, But it also sounds like that's the kind of thing that you all would do Mm -hmm. with people as you talk them through issues that they've gone through in your life. Am I accurate?
2: That's Absolutely. Well, and to speak to the example you gave with um, the gentleman, you noticed he was going to the bathroom. I mean, you also saw him, like you you, you saw him, you saw he was struggling through mm-hmm. something, you choose, chose to engage, you chose to interact. And I think that that, you know, not just from the encouragement or the cognitive part of the conversation, but to see people, to notice them is huge. Um, because, you know, that could have gone completely unnoticed. And in his mind, he could have created a whole different narrative about everybody else seems to be fine. And they doing yep. okay and they've got it together. a bunch of seals they're all acting yeah. like they're fine and i'm, I'm <laughs> and i am different in some ways you know so to like to see that person to yeah, make like that I eye contact a
0: that's a yeah. scary thing like i must be a coward Absolutely. Oh my gosh. why is everyone walking around like a badass right and i'm sitting here like a coward yep and in
2: the absence of the communication or in the attunement that you gave him like all kinds of things can happen so that's huge
1: mm-hmm. yep. yeah and, and i think with um especially in the treatment world and at a new for sure um, a lot of our clients come in. The, the ones who have been in the system for a bit, this is like not their first rodeo. There is that identity mm-hmm. that has almost been adopted a lot of the times. Like, I, I'm schizophrenic. Mm. So I need to take these pills. So, much, so Yeah, I'm cursed. Uh, I need to take these pills. Well, what, why are you taking them? I don't know. It's just what they give me. Right? There's this kind of... Um, when will my symptoms go away? Right, the, this this lack of what you're talking about is like it's totally normal that that's happening today. I get yesterday you felt great and today you woke up thinking these things that you weren't thinking yesterday. That, yes, we're going to move and march toward. Look, what can we do about it? What we, can we do to help you feel better? Sometimes it's just going and having your cry over there and then come back on over. Totally mm. fine. But the idea of validating is what like you're talking about is like, yep, that's happening. I get it, and it sucks today, and it may even suck tomorrow. You have schizophrenia. This might be something that you deal with on and off your entire life, but by doing these things, having it normalized, people being seen, people um, supporting versus... Why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. You know, um, over time, it gets less and less. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was going to say. But the, the little kid that asked me, like, I feel I, yeah. I feel like I'm alone. Yeah. Y- uh-huh. Yeah, you're going to feel alone. That's totally normal. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're going to be alone. Yeah. Like, that's going to happen. Yeah. And when you're a teenager and you don't get invited to the party, you're going to be bummed out. Oh, that's just normal. Mm-hmm. That's just like a, oh, and when you're a teenager and your boyfriend or your girlfriend dumps you – yeah, you're gonna feel sad, and and that's just the way you feel, and in a little while you won't even remember who that person was, and you'll carry on with the rest of your life. So being aware of what's going on mm-hmm. in these, these uh, peaks and valleys of life, knowing that they're there, is such a positive thing. And a lot of times, and I, I guess, especially going back to social media, it was like, oh, if all I see on social media is everyone's smiling and happy and looks, you know, like they're doing some awesome thing and I'm sitting at home in my room alone. Mm-hmm. Like, for, that's life. Mm-hmm. You're gonna be alone. You're gonna get dumped. You're not gonna get invited to the cool cool guy party. All these things are gonna happen and they're totally normal and you'll get through them and they're not gonna be fun, but that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. We get we get a lot of uh, people that don't even recognize that this is the way life is. Well, actually, um, we were just talking the other day. You know, I, I um, my friend Jordan Peterson will say life is suffering, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like a religious context. The Buddhist says life is suffering, and I, I was like, yeah, you know, I get it. it. That's a good way. It's a good thing to know. It's a good thing to know that that life, that in life there is suffering, right? But. You don't have to go and say life, all of life is suffering. There's going to be some valleys, you know. There's going to be some darkness. We get it, but it's not all of life.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna come out of that. You're gonna see some light. You're gonna have some fun. You're gonna, but then you're gonna get sucked down into mm-hmm. some darkness again. And and that's that's what I think people don't, or what mm-hmm. I think people need to understand is there's a cycle to life. Sure. And you're gonna have some good, and you're gonna have some bad. And that's the same with everybody. No yeah. one is just basking in the in the in the sun and the warmth for their whole life, um, unless you're only looking at them on Instagram, in which case they're yeah. doing it and they're doing it in a G string bikini. Yeah. That's the way they're doing it.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, and with PTSD, I mean, it, a lot of other things too, a lot of other um, conditions or diagnosis. I mean, I've heard this so many times. We definitely hear it at the treatment center for people who've been maybe in an illness for a lot longer. Is, so when is this going to go away? Mm-hmm. When, when am I going to not have this yeah. anymore? And this idea of like it, it may not kind of like with trauma right yeah. every time you remember that buddy or hear mm-hmm. that song you're going to have a little something show up and yeah is it that's less okay. than before sure but like maybe your whole life every time you hear that song you might feel a little something going on there and that's okay like gets like totally normal. Yeah. I
0: feel that when I hear the star-spangled banner. Yes, mm-hmm. every Like time. when I hear the star-spangled banner, if I'm not careful, I'll get like super emotional. Yeah. From the start. And that's a song that you hear a lot, right? All the time. I mean, you're at every sporting event. So, yeah. And it, here's the thing. I guess in my own narcissistic mind, I've thought, hey, that's normal and I'm that's sure. okay. It's okay. It's okay to feel like that. Yeah. This is the way things go. Where, you know, you mentioned um, quickly there, you mentioned drugs and i just had a Mm -hmm. a a friend of mine on the podcast who by the time he went and saw sought help in the navy he was in the seal teams by the time he went and sought help he got immediately prescribed something by the time he got out a year or two later he was on seven Mm -hmm. seven different um drugs Mm -hmm. you know this one to get you get you amped up for the day this one to keep you level-headed, this one to put you to sleep at night. Is like they're all counter to each other. And just a, just a disaster. At what point, where, where, where did these drugs come into play? Now, we, he and I both acknowledged, and again, this is something that, that I know from, from talking and reading, is absolutely, there's times where like, oh, this person needs this specific drug to help them get through this situation where do you where do you all think these drugs come into play and what do we need to be careful of?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, so it's hard to speak to that part. But generally when somebody's coming in on a bunch of different medications, you know, there's a there's a conversation about like, do you do you know what you're taking? Oftentimes, with folks with complex psychiatric disorders, they they don't. Um, it's just this is what I was told to take. Do you know what it's treating? Um, how do you know that it's helping you? And really starting to dis- discern that because I mean, I think we you know, and this is my opinion in some ways, but in a culture of sort of instant gratification or seeking something outside of myself to soothe, you know, there there's a lot of benefit to various, you know, psychiatric medications. They can really help stabilize someone in a place where without otherwise they might not be able to receive some of that treatment. Um, and at some point assessing like why I use this, I think is really important, right? Mm-hmm. Do I use it because I think it's going to fix or take this thing away? I think this would apply to mm-hmm. not just a prescription drug, but any kind of substance, you know, why do I, drink do I do because you know, I enjoy a glass of wine at night or whatever it may be. Or do I drink to alter my mood? Do I change this to alter my mood in a way because I don't feel like I can do this independently or on my own? So I think assessing why um, someone is using the various amount of things and their understanding of it. And, um, you know, one of the things, the benefits of being able to do long-term treatment in a structured environment is it gives us an opportunity to um, sort of unpack some of these things, obviously, with the support of a psychiatrist and somebody, you know, who's medical overseeing their care to see um, – you know what? What in fact is this actually treating at this point? Is it helpful? Um, and if it is, great. Um, uh, but also, too, does it take us out of the role of like the work because? You know, therapy is hard work. Like, people might think therapy is a soft place to come and whatever. Therapy is hard work. Someone mm-hmm. who commits to therapy is really willing to do some work. I mean, unless you're in a place where somebody's just like buttering you up and giving you compliments all day long. But when you come to do therapy, you come to do work, especially in a residential treatment center. Mm-hmm. You're not just receiving mm-hmm. all these things. But medications often is this notion of like, I'm just taking this thing, but there's no. Um, it's very different than the, um, the amount of effort that's involved in walking through a very difficult situation or if I'm afraid of something in particular I haven't gone to. Um, address some of this unresolved grief or, you know, uh, whatever it might be, you know, engaging in that behavior is very difficult. It's going to bring up a lot of feelings um, and and uh, walking through that can be incredibly healing. A very different approach than if I'm choosing to just take something to mm-hmm. get rid of something. Um, well, I
1: think there's like an agency thing, which I think shows up in a lot of your work. I mean, even just what you've shared today sure. yeah. is people say like, well, oh, I, I, I'm f- feeling so much. I'm going to call my psychiatrist. I'm going to call the doctor. I, I need to get, I need something for this is very external. One instant gratification but also this whether the person's aware of it or not this idea that like I don't believe in my ability to manage myself. Mm-hmm. I need you to give me something to feel better, and a lot of the longer-term work in therapy, definitely in our program, because it's so it's longer-term, is this idea of helping people internalize agency versus just rely on external things to like make them be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know
0: that seems like a basic principle of yeah. success in life. But right? you'd be
1: amazed with people with the, some of these complex right. psychiatric diagnoses that th- that's the the sense of personal agency is so low. Right. Whether it's like I just take these pills because my psychiatrist says I'm supposed to, or my mom says I mm-hmm. need to, versus like, do you know what what are you taking? Um, or having conversation with your doctor about side effects or whatever. But this sense of I don't have, I don't have what it takes to manage myself and my situation and the demands of life. So I That's need. That's a have.
0: horrible mindset.
1: Mm-hmm. Horrible, and mm-hmm. it's very very common with yeah, with the, mental illness.
0: Mm-hmm. The, um, And uh, I mentioned I I talked about SSRIs on some other podcast, and and uh, you know I read through the comments, and you know there was definitely some people that were like, hey, you know these things really helped me, Mm -hmm. and there was and of course you're going to get that side, and you of course got the side of like, oh that that stuff was a disaster for me. Um, The side effects when you when you read the side effects, you're like, oh my god, you know like emotional blunting, violence, bipolar switch, suicide risk from the medicine that you're taking so there's definite risks need to that needs to be paid attention to um the other side of the spectrum as far as i'm concerned is something that y- you are you already mentioned carlin uh what about just like sleep mm-hmm. diet mm-hmm. and exercise how often are we how often are we blowing that
1: often <laughs> often <laughs> often i mean it is amazing when when we bring folks into the the program, we try and set aside like kind of the first month, give or take. It may take longer because this person maybe has not been sleeping well at right. all, um, not eating well. Like ha- maybe they've been using, maybe they haven't poor hygiene, C- caffeine, smoking. Yeah. I mean, you name it. So just like getting somebody eating well and on a regular basis, getting some physical exercise, getting like their sleep hygiene in mm-hmm. order. Uh, structuring some habits yeah. throughout I mean, the day. you' would am- be amazed how much changes just in that little period of time. Mm-hmm. And we've talked with folks that, um, and this is also related to the meds is sometimes when people have they're seen multiple doctors or they go in and they see a different doctor every time and, who, and they may not be coordinating. So you're just getting all kinds of meds and things that may not even really go together. So same with diagnoses. We've had folks come in with a laundry list yes. of diagnoses. I'm like you can't even have half of those, <laughs> yes, at, the half same of those time. at the same time. Like, but these were all little snapshots of oh, this trip to the ER and this trip to yeah. the hospital. Like, this is what they looked like that day, and that's what they look like this day. It doesn't mean they have all of those things. So let's get them eating and sleeping and in a routine, mm-hmm. and comfortable showering, physical like all the activity, things, the basic psychological mm-hmm. and physical wellness and safety and guess what almost all of these diagnoses go away. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're left with like these couple right, right here.
0: Yeah, I was on uh, I was on Joe Rogan's podcast and it was it was the morning of Chris Cornell from mm. from Soundgarden had killed himself. Mm. A- and of course, you know, um J- Joe and I started talking about it. A- and look, we're just a couple knuckle draggers talking um but you know, both of us were kind of like, man, you know, like Get a kettlebell to work out. Like you know, again, like I said, we're we're just a couple knuckle draggers talking, and you know, again, reading the comments, um, people like, oh, you know, you think just working out is going to solve everything, and uh, of course, I don't think that. But damn, (laughs) it's a good thing to do. Go get healthy. Get on a sleep schedule where you're doing like where you're getting some good sleep. Eat good food. Stop eating trash go outside, move around. This is real, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's both Mm -hmm. and. I mean, because without the structure that we create, the therapeutic process that we try to do is not possible. Like, without the routine, without the sleep, without the healthy eating, can't actually do that therapeutic part. So there's a lot that can happen in that initial structure and physical activity and all this. And for those folks with those clinical aspects that require a deeper level of, like, therapeutic intervention or psychiatric support, um, that's the framework that has to maintain. That never changes. That structure and stability is the the main component that sort of holds the foundation for everything else to be able to be possible. So it's definitely, um, you know, with any sort of complex human issue, you can't say that one thing is going to solve anything, yeah, Of course, but that is, um, undoubtedly the foundation for which all else sort of occurs for for our folks and becomes the thing that they maintain long term when they move into their own houses they're still getting up at a certain time they might pick their day that they go grocery shopping they might because that structure and routine is is very helpful
0: human Mm -hmm. beings like that don't Mm we mm -hmm. and when you live without it it's just the beginning of possible serious issues. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a, another thing that I talked about on a podcast. This was around um mass shootings. And and as as myself and my friend Daryl were looking into the various causes behind these mass shootings, one of the most shocking uh pieces of information that we came across is this right here. So in 1955, in America, there were 340 inpatient beds mm-hmm. per 100,000 people. So I'm going to say that again. In 1955, 1955 for every 100,000 people there were in America, there were 340 inpatient beds for mental health care.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, here we are. You fast forward to 2007. In 2007, there were only 17 beds for every 100,000 people and here we are, we talk about mental health all the time now some of the feedback that I got about that episode was that in the 50s and 60s there were these really heinous some really heinous um, events that happened inside these psychiatric wards and people were abused and they pretty much from everything I can tell, threw the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. and just said, oh, you know what, we're just gonna shut these things. Abuse happens in these places, we'll shut them all down. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think about, like, you know, I live in San Diego. I think about, well, there's a couple million people in San Diego. That means that there would be a, a few thousand inpatient beds <laughs> if we were on the 1955 levels. And if you go around San Diego and you go look at the homeless people, many of whom have psychological and mental health issues, if you opened up all those beds, they would probably fill them and we'd be in a much different place and these people would be getting some kind of treatment that they actually need. What? What do you think happened with this? Is it just the, the abuses that took place? We shut them down? What is there anything else?
2: I mean, I mean there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot to this. I mean, you're talking about the deinstitutionalization. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, some of this started even back into the 1700s, but there there's like... At the time, in the time that you're referring to, primarily residential facilities is where folks would be able to take their loved ones with mental health, right? So if people had mental health issues, they went into these residential facilities, um, and that's where they primarily received treatment um, or just a place to stay. And then as that evolved, you know, sometimes um, I think the term asylum came mm-hmm. along at some point. This became a place where people could stay and also work and such, and they were having, you know. But what was really happening on the inside um, was a pretty restrictive setting in some ways, and then there was some, you know, People that had gone in and saw, you know, all this horrific stuff that was happening, and so ultimately, all of these sort of things moved towards this idea that a person is entitled to like the least restrictive settings. And there's a lot of stuff that happened over the course of the period of time for this, but that a person should not be chained up; they should be entitled to the least restrictive setting. And so um, then you also had the the notion then coming in of um, SSDI and SSI and these different things that started reform as federal movements. But
0: people, what's SSDI? So SSI? it's Social
2: Security Disability Income. Um, or Social Security income that came from like a federal uh, movement. So this part where people who were in inpatient facilities at the time were not entitled to those resources and so sort of oh. forced this max set of exodus as mm-hmm. discharge from hospitals um, for them to be able to receive these services. And what you find at that time then, it also, um, some of the states created laws that made it much more difficult for people to uh, readmit to inpatient settings, right? So the, the notion was good, this idea that people will do better in the community, they'll do better in a least restrictive setting, let's create these resources like SSDI and such like that for them. However, it sort of flipped its on its head in terms of the amount of resources that the community wasn't ready to absorb that. So what we saw is sometimes in some states, I think California, I can't remember the year, but in the year of sort of uh, discharge of hospitals out into, we saw the jail population double California um, and the homeless population go by. They, they think that what I recently read is something around like 65 percent of the uh, jails are, are, are full of people with mental health issues. I, I
0: was talking to a police officer uh, a, a month, month and a half ago and he, he was just he had heard that podcast and he's like yeah he goes I 100% have to arrest people and there's no possible way that they belong in jail. Mm-hmm. They belong in some kind of a mental health mm-hmm. facility and there's nowhere to take them. So right. guess where they go? They go to jail.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right. Or or they don't go anywhere, you know, or they just get, you know, they might get go into jail for two nights mm-hmm. and then they get kicked out on, back out on the street mm-hmm. and they're just deteriorating. Sure.
2: Well, and if you read about this, I mean, depending on where you come from, congressman, rulemaker, they're going to say financial stuff, whatever. Like everybody has sort of a different rationale as to, you know, why deinstitutionalization the outcome. But ultimately what we know is that we didn't know anything really around that time around complex psychiatric illnesses. It was just in the, the, the mid-50s that the first, um, like the 1950s, uh, antipsychotic drug was released. Prior to that, it was, you know, people with mental illness, like they'd never be cured, right? There was the myth of mental illness. We didn't know too much about it. And so, I think Thorazine was the first mm-hmm. antipsychotic that came out in the 1950s. And so, at that point, it was like, oh, well, people can get better, um, and that was a very also pivotal movement in the deinstitutionalization of people that historically had been able to be seen as like they just will always need to live in some type of facility. It became, oh, we can like do something with mm-hmm. this. And today, obviously, there's there's tons of different things, but. Um, yeah, it definitely had an impact on our, our homeless and jail population.
0: Uh-huh. Is there any movement back in the other direction at all?
2: I mean, I don't know too much to speak to that part, but what I will say about like anew and what Humble Chia had been for a very long time is it's a very unique model of care that allows for a, a full continuum of care where people can have um, like a residential setting sort of right out of the hospital for a long-term period of time and then fluidly move through transitional residential for a person to be able to kind of integrate what they need and then also to be able to move back into that inpatient setting if they need to and instead of sort of this pattern of i I end up in the hospital i get discharged to either home environment or a place that's just not conducive for me to be able to integrate that treatment episode i'm i'm out on the streets or i'm not receiving the care i need until i regress again that i've been up back in the hospital and utilize all these emergency services like and our our model of care really allows people to stay long-term in a way that they can move fluidly through this and avoid really moving into the hospitalizations but it's also um it's a it's a private pay model it's a you Mm -hmm. know insurance is not going to pay for that for Mm -hmm. folks right because and so folks who are primarily dependent on insurance and such like that will find themselves in
1: more short-term environments um Mm -hmm. kind of like like crisis intervention environments which just it creates kind of a revolving door Mm -hmm. right I'm in crisis, I come in here for a couple of days, a couple of hours, maybe a week, sta- stabilize, get out. There's n- nothing available for me once I'm out, so I deteriorate, and then I come back. Right? There, or just, I end up in jail, because oftentimes or, people yeah, with mental illness. Versus, um, like the idea with de- deinstitutionalization was this idea of people having more rights, more agency, being out in the community, not being locked up, but but then so be kind of they're released to... To nothing that could hold them so like what you were saying megan is <clears throat> a lot of our clients come in um, from a hospital or like could have been in one maybe they've been maintained at home but wow. like not not well and it takes uh, it's like this whole arc it takes a long time to stabilize all the stuff we just talked about with sleep and food before we can even get into the nitty-gritty of like what is going on here and what needs to happen? Let's get you off these 14 meds. Let's figure out what was really happening. Like this takes a long time. So the idea was nice. It was like kind of a, a humane idea, but the, the, the out, outside world was not equipped to receive all of these folks and, and actually help them. Mm-hmm. So they got worse, deteriorated in their symptoms, and then they're getting arrested, they're getting picked up. Homeless. You know, you, you go to a um, t- drop them off at some emergency room. They'll sit in the lobby for a day or two, get, mm-hmm. get some meds. There's your meds again, and they're out. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so I, I would think that the long-term hope
1: mm-hmm. is
0: that this model of mm-hmm. treatment, which right now is basically for people that can afford it, and it's expensive, mm-hmm. is that over time people start to recognize this should be a, uh, number one, a type of treatment that should be covered by insurance, and number two, at some point, it gets to a, a, a situation where the public, there can be some public offering of treatment centers like this. But it's got to be proven for an even longer. I mean, you've already been doing this for how long, Carlin? 25 20, years. 25 years. Mm-hmm. You've seen incredible successes over those 25 Absolutely. years. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that as people hear this, as people learn more about the methodology that you're using, first of all, like just other people in the private sector will pick up this type of model and start moving with it, and then eventually insurance hopefully starts to cover it, and then eventually we start saying, "Oh, these, you know, these these homeless people on the street that have psychological problems, the worst thing we could do is take them, throw them into prison for, or throw them into jail for two days and kick them back on the street. We're just going to do that. So it's a never-ending cycle. Mm-hmm. To get back to a point where look." Do we want to have people chained up to walls and having lobotomies and having electroshock therapy? No, obviously we don't. That's that's horrible. Mm-hmm. And I I owe an episode on some of those um, some of those horror shows that have taken place in the past, but. To get to a point where there's only 17 beds per 100,000 people, I mean, you take 100,000 human beings with all the fragility of someone's brain and mind, and you think you're only going to need 17 Mm -hmm. inpatient beds, that's a crazy thought. And yet, that's where we're at. Mm -hmm. So what my hope is, is this model that you all are executing starts to be seen as the way To actually help people and it can broaden beyond you know people that can afford this type of treatment because this type of treatment is very expensive Mm -hmm. and and we can number one get insurance to cover it and number two hopefully eventually get it to a point where a model like this can be used on a broader public scale um, that that the state can pay for if people need it mm-hmm.
1: and, and yeah like affordable and accessible and by the way i just want to uh pause because you have been a great support to us yes. i mean not only in the a new treatment center but in our previous facilities so like you said in the beginning coming in is like oh i just i'm going to invest some money here some guys you know but you know what your so contribution and your involvement in that and staying involved i think what seven eight nine years with our group mm-hmm. has helped make this this possible um so thank you yeah. yes right. absolutely and um but that would be my hope too mm-hmm. right is, is um what are the st- you know if you look at any national institute for mental health or cdc one in five people has is considered having like kind of a, a mental health experience mm-hmm. one in 20 is considered as having like a serious mental health Diagnosis or condition right. one in twenty. So I don't know the math in a hundred thousand people. Yep. How right. many does that turn out to? And we got seventeen bets. Right. I mean, it's 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 insane.
0: Yeah, it's horrible. Um, probably a good place to wrap it up. Um, yeah. What what did we miss anything? Yeah, if the w-
1: the one thing I was thinking about yep. earlier, and you had mentioned scaffolding. And again, I think this go uh, like it goes with a lot of y- your your work, as my it, Jocko, is this idea of. There is a need for external scaffolding. Like you said earlier, people, like, do they, like, they don't really want to be there. Mm -hmm. Nope, they don't. And in the beginning, that's totally fine. We're going to, like, scaffold them up because internally they're kind of jiggly and not really set, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to hold them until things can kind of firm up a little bit. And over time, as they're building, we, we pull the external scaffolding back because what is happening theoretically is, internally, their their internal scaffolding is, is taking shape and taking hold. So it's very much about helping people access their own agency, their mm-hmm. own strength, normalizing and saying, yep, I get it. today. You know what? Today is just a rough one. That's fine. Nothing is wrong with you. Yep. We're just having one of those days. And help them de- develop that internal confidence and agency of like self-management, even when you have an illness, even if you have PTSD, even if you lost your friend.
0: Yeah. Well, this is the... Uh the title of the book that i wrote discipline equals freedom mm-hmm. it's the exact same thing right mm-hmm. i mean it's like you put the disciplines in 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 your life around um waking up around sticking to a structure around going to get groceries around showering which yeah. you mentioned mm-hmm. it and you mentioned it like v- very quickly you said oh, you know showering look you get people that aren't that's showering absolutely. That, that's yes. an issue right yeah. so we got to have the discipline to get up to stay on a schedule to eat good foods to shower to brush our teeth and once we get that kind of scaffolding, that kind mm-hmm. of discipline in, in place, then it becomes internal. It yes. becomes self-discipline, mm-hmm. and now we can get more and more yeah. freedom as time goes on. 100%. What are some good tactics, techniques, and procedures for getting someone to want to help themselves? So, so, I you know I got a family member, they you know they're not dealing with reality, or they're 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 starting to show some of these signs. What's a, what's a step to take that might be helpful? So like a, I have a book called Extreme Ownership and people would say like, well, how do I get my boss to read it? And the worst thing you can do is go to the boss and say, hey boss, you need to read this book. <laughs> you know, so we say, oh, you go and say, hey boss, I read this book. It really helped me out a lot. I'm trying to hold myself to these standards. Can you just look at it? And if you see me slipping, can you type me up? You know, a little indirect approach. Do you have any recommendations around what to do and maybe some recommendations of what not to do? Sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think... It, with your example, consistency is huge and patience too because oftentimes like we want people to move at the level of our ability to tolerate what's going on for them and it's very uncomfortable to see someone struggling. It's very uncomfortable to see someone so hopeless. You're hearing their narratives. You're like, what, where, where are you even thinking at? And often we want them to move faster than they're ready to move but what you're describing with the framing around the book is we plant seeds. We create as much structure and consistency as we can. We plant seeds. We help people to kind of um, be thinking about and, you know, how this will impact them but every day it's the sort of same conversation until they get it and sort of a loving approach with them until they get it and being able to tolerate what comes up for me when um, somebody isn't moving at the pace that i want them to because when we're talking about you know somebody who made me needs a little pick-me-up that turnaround might be a lot quicker than somebody with a chronic sort of complex disorder And, and in that case like it might take Days or months before that person gets up and goes showers on their own. So, can I deal with my own frustration, right? Can I deal with my own sense of like helplessness and like sense of powerlessness or even inadequacy and not being able to like shift? Like, all these things come up for someone when you're loving somebody through something like this. Um, But consistency is huge. And then remembering that you're not hurting someone by trying to hold them um, in their own discomfort, right? So, if somebody is uncomfortable, but you're helping move them through something that's good for them, you're not hurting them. Mm -hmm. Um, actually they're experiencing that discomfort is going to be really helpful for them it's a very loving thing to do there's a conversation I have with parents often about this notion of like hurting in some ways when my child is experiencing discomfort no in fact like experiencing discomfort in this thing is actually really um, motivating yes and amazing for them Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a super loving thing to do Um,
0: yeah and I think it's important to you know, when I talked about oh, it's it's normal to go and like, hey, you're sad. That's normal. Hey, you feel down when you hear this song. That's normal. Hey, it's also normal if you've got a kid or a relative that's having some issues that you take them to the engine shop to get mm-hmm. checked out and see what's going on. Yep. Like this is also a normal thing. So mm-hmm. I think that's another uh, stigma to mm-hmm. to to, mm-hmm. to punch through. Anything we should not do? Any any warnings? Like hey. That, that that's not a good approach when you're trying to get someone to help themselves?
1: Well, I think like some of the examples you used earlier, uh, and even like when the kids call and ask you questions is like the n- not the shaming stuff. Like you said, like, well, what a, a mom who is gonna say something like, like well, why are you doing that? You're like Those kind of things aren't typically helpful because you know, nobody wants to be ill. Nobody wants to have PTSD. Nobody wants to have these symptoms. So even on the surface, if it looks like, why on earth would you do that? They're not doing it to like be difficult or willful or to make themselves you know worse. So um, it's easy. It's part of the stigma to move into kind of a shaming, um, why, why? Why did you do that? Like, that's, that's ridiculous. Or you, you know better than that. Like this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They, they, it, I mean, people will sink, right? They mm-hmm. kind of cower and sink into that and in some ways might even come to believe that I'm weak, I'm Mm incapable, I'm stupid, I'm whatever, which is going to suck the sense of agency. Mm -hmm. So encouragement, still tough love. I mean, it's a blend of all these things. Like, I'm going to be kind and respectful, also a little bit firm, also let you know that I absolutely believe in you. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to get up right now and we're going to do this thing even though I know you feel really sad. Um,
2: Well, and I would say mm -hmm.
1: to not disregard your own intuition, especially
2: Mm -hmm. when we're talking about suicide because there's such a there there's also can be a self stigma in some ways and so if your intuition has you wondering about something or something seemed off with them or oft- oftentimes we can talk ourselves out of that oh we don't step into other people's business that's somebody else's kid or it's not my place to do that or you know maybe if I bring this up it'll make it worse for them you know and so I think trusting our intuition is huge if there's a pull in some ways to check in with somebody or ask them how they're doing or you notice something that feels off um, can't tell you how many times especially when we're working in a peer-supported environment because we're trying to get folks when we're bringing them into this like like, housing and they're living together to sort of notice each other and take care of each other, create their own community and friendships. When we see something go kind of sideways with someone or they regress significantly or something happens and you start asking their peers sort of what was going on, oftentimes they noticed something, Mm -hmm. but their intuition talked them out of it. They'll be mad at me if I hold them accountable. You know, I didn't tell everybody when I didn't see that they were up for meds because I didn't want to like kind of call them out or whatever it might be. Um, And so I think that um, you know, trusting our intuition with that and like really checking in with people and asking important questions um, and working through our own fears that
1: we have related to
2: addressing some of these things are super important.
1: And your example of like, like, hey, that's like the fourth time you went to the bathroom in the last half an hour, Mm -hmm. right? Imagine, like you were saying, if you hadn't said that, like what what that person would have mm-hmm. done in their head and how that would have so i think one of the advice like it's both is say something say mm-hmm. something call it out ask a question hey like again the person might say oh i'm good i'm good don't worry mm-hmm. about it okay but at least you saw them yeah. and they experienced you they seeing saw them, that you saw them versus like that blind eye i mean i think the turning the blind eye not saying the thing keeping the secrets
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, under the rug is the worse yeah. I
0: uh, from a leadership perspective, I always often talk about asking earnest questions mm-hmm. and how that's a great indirect way to let people know that you are watching and that mm-hmm. you're interested and it, and the key word is earnest. It's not like hey, I noticed you know you you've been sad lately um, what's what's wrong with you yeah, which is sure. an accusatory yeah. question mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to being like, hey, you know hey, hey uh, what are you doing this weekend? like an earnest question mm-hmm. that's an earnest question what are you doing this weekend? I'm not doing anything. Oh well, what about next weekend? I'm not doing anything. Hmm. Do you want to do something? Like, do you want to go catch a move? You know, so like these kind of earnest questions are a good way to interact with people without being accusatory, and and, and they might be like, yeah, you know, I, I no, I haven't been doing much lately because I've you know I've been sick for the last few weeks and I'm just going to heal up and you go. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. In which case, cool. Great.
2: You yeah. can carry on.
1: They, they know yeah, We they saw you notice them.
2: Right.
0: Yeah, we yes.
1: talk about it as being
2: curious as yeah. opposed to accused approaching everything with a certain level of yeah. curiosity. It'll, it'll take you a long way.
0: That will do mm. it. Um, Megan, any closing thoughts?
2: Thank you yeah. for having <laughs> us be here. <laughs> yeah. Extremely Likewise. grateful to be a part of this. And yes, I mean, I think. In terms of the work that we do, it takes a special type of person to be to able to have this conversation, to talk about this, to to work with this population, to be a part of it, and and you're definitely a part of that. So thank you.
0: Yeah, likewise, Glad to be here, Carla, anything else?
1: Same. Thank you for your support.
0: Um, if anybody wants to find you, mm-hmm. the the latest and greatest, the new treatment center is called anew. It's a good play on words you did there. Yeah, a <laughs> new treatment hard on that. <laughs> dot com. Yes. Um, you're on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So you're on social media mm-hmm. with some positivity. Yes. Uh, that's at a new treatment center. You're on Facebook. You're on LinkedIn. And you're on YouTube. You got your own little, little YouTube channel going
1: mm-hmm. on. I've mm-hmm. been running. Don't follow <laughs> the social I media
2: <laughs> part, but I'm really glad that's
0: happening. I, and all those are at a new treatment center. And mm-hmm. I was uh, I was thinking you two should do a little podcast, by the way. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to let you know that. You should do it. You should talk about like some cases that you see because – People will be interested in it. I think it would be very educational, and um, I know I, I was laughed because Joe Rogan told me to start a podcast, and at the time I was like, "Oh, you know, that's pretty cool." And then you realize Joe Rogan literally at one point in time, Joe Rogan told everyone on his podcast to start a podcast because he was super stoked on podcasts. Well, he knew
2: he was gonna get it right in one way or the other.
0: And a bunch of people people have started podcasts, but certainly him and Tim Ferriss both told me to start a podcast and I listened to him. But um, I think that if you broke it down and did some podcasts about some of the things that you see, I think it would really be helpful for Mm -hmm. people and uh, would be cool. Um, So there you go. That's my little little recommendation. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for educating us. Thanks for trying to educate me. I know it can be challenging sometimes. <laughs> uh, Megan, of course, thanks for your service in the Navy. And uh, yeah. thanks to both of you for what you're doing today to help heal people, help get people to a point where they can live productive and happy lives. And and, and by the way, if there's anyone out there right now that's listening, um, you might not feel great today. And you might need to uh, – Bring the car into the shop and get that thing looked at Mm -hmm. and figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with it. It's going to make you better. Thanks for doing that, both of you. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate it. And with that, Megan and Carlin have left the building and Echo Charles has returned. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. (laughs) So you were sitting there listening. Yes. You've been taking the, uh, what, the kind of, off-camera approach Last two podcasts yeah. You've been sitting there Observing detached Yeah A lot going on there Isn't there Yes A lot going on In yeah. the In the mental health world
4: Yeah Yeah it's really It's like a slippery scenario Right Because just like how You get It's a spectrum It's not like Oh you're the You know like you Compared to your body So if yep. you break your arm Yep It's like oh yeah A broken arm Yeah, Or maybe you got a fractured arm Mm-hmm and that's sort of, it's kind of a distinct thing. Well, fractured, protocol. Yep. Broken, mm, stress fracture, okay. Uh, a spiral fracture, okay, you know, kind of a thing. Pretty but,
0: limited, like as far as a bone break, yeah. you're kind of... It, there, there's a pretty specific protocol you're going to follow. It's pretty easy things, to diagnose, yeah. right? Yeah. The spectrum isn't this weird. It's the it, you know there's cards of gray. You know yeah. maybe this bone compound fracture or whatever. Like there's some yeah. differences, well, yeah. but we know that a broken bone is a broken bone. Here's how we fix it.
4: Yeah, and then that's not okay. And then compared to the mental part, where it's like it's just it's it's this spectrum, and you can fall anywhere on the yeah. spectrum. And by the, the way, you do fall on. Like we
0: all fall on. That's what makes it even. That's double what makes it tri- interest. That's what yeah. really. That's part of what makes it interesting to me. Is like, oh, you're a little bit of a narcissist. I'm a little bit of a narcissist. I'm a little bit paranoid. You're a little bit paranoid. How paranoid are you? Are you good paranoid? Because there's a certain level of paranoia. Like someone that's not paranoid at all is just like going through life. They can just gonna get taken advantage of. You got to be somewhat paranoid. Yeah. Delusional. So just like the dichotomy of leadership, like the dichotomy of your mental uh, status is has to be balanced.
4: Yeah. That's and that's so. It makes it so clear how helpful it is to understand and inversely kind of to express that to people who might be in a certain situation that like, hey, that's that's normal. Like there's nothing, quote unquote, wrong. That's normal, you know. And um, so and that's what makes it even harder, too, where it's like this bad thing, this thing that I don't want. You know, like you break your arm, something that you hurt, your arm will mm-hmm. say you hurt your, before you go to the doctor or whatever. You know something's wrong. Like, this thing is hurting. It's not getting better, whatever. Let me go to the, I know something's wrong. So mentally, you're going to feel sad for two days or f- whatever you feel. You have these feelings for two days that are normal. So it's, like, harder to, you know, after a while, it's like maybe if I'm behaving in a certain way. It's yeah. like certain symptoms have to kind of arrive or arise along with the feeling. Yeah. And it's all, like, and if you don't know, you don't know, you know. So it's, like, just so slippery like that. I took
0: down a note during Catch-22. Yeah. Which which, which basically means because b- even with with uh, Marcus and Amber on the last podcast, I was kind of like, you know, I feel fine and like I don't think I need anything, right? That's what yeah. I'm telling them. And then these guys show up today. These girls show up today. These women show up today. And I kind of tell them the same thing. You know, before we get in here, I'm like, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, I'm fine. But then it... <laughs> One of the no, one of the like notifications of when you're crazy is when you don't think you're crazy, right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I'm that guy that doesn't yeah. think he's crazy, but I'm actually totally crazy. So uh, yep. I thought that was kind of funny as I was thinking through that. I was like, wait a second, I'm the guy that's in here. I'm fine, yeah, but yeah. I'm actually crazy. Yeah, oh yeah. So gotta watch out for that one. Yes,
4: and we all know people, maybe not a lot, but we know people who are like they obviously routinely do things that are just, you shouldn't be doing that, and they're like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, absolutely fine, so you're like, man, am I that guy? Just yeah. not uh, knowing all uh, the things that I'm doing that's not fine, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, gotta watch out for it, but um, what, what, a, what a fascinating world, and as I was doing research for that podcast, and we only got to so much, I mean, there's so, every one of these things, when you open it up, I mean, mm-hmm there's a story and like a a whole world behind being paranoid and what a really paranoid or being anorexic, what a real, what that looks like. Like there's a whole world behind each one of these. That's what's, that's what's interesting. Interesting. Like compared to, uh, you know, an orthopedic surgeon, like sure. There's a bunch of different things that can go on with a broken arm or with whatever. Right. Mm. But you know, this is just, Wildness, yeah. you know, it's wildness and you, you remember how you uh, a long time ago on the podcast You said working out is like the one thing that you can do that will positively f- Impact everything that you do in your life. Well that, yeah. that proved to be right. But what what's interesting is Having a broken arm is Going to impact some parts of your life, but it's not going to impact like everything yeah. but if you have some kind of a mental health issue It's like everything is yeah. going to be impacted yeah. and and again, it's a spectrum where it's like, oh, you know what? Now I'm kinda like I don't go out as much. Mm. All right, cool. You know, it's no big deal, right? But then where does it go? Like, does it I don't go out much to, hey, I'm not gonna go I'm I'm not gonna go to the grocery store, to I'm gonna have people drop my food at the end of the hallway, to I'm just gonna sit in here and like not eat. Like the yeah. it like gets it's just a, it's very strange. And the other thing that I find Interesting is just how when I when I talk when I talked to him about how I had said in the academy, like we're all insane. Mm-hmm. Everyone's insane because your version of reality is different than my version of reality. And by the way, neither your version or my version is actually correct. Yeah. Like what your perception is is not a hundred percent correct. My perception is not hundred percent correct. We hope that you and I have a big overlap.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Like we hope that we have a big, huge yeah. overlap. And there's like a little bit that I think is a little different, a little bit that's what we hope. And we hope that with most people in our lives, most of it is relatively close. Yeah. But the fact is, and also the fact is they're not going to be perfect and different people. Like you can go meet someone today. You and I have 97% overlap. We can go talk to someone right now that we only overlap like 20 or 30% of reality. Yeah. Their reality is just different. Yeah. And that's a real thing. That's reality. So, um, it's mayhem out there.
4: It is mayhem out there. It's crazy, man. It it's crazy cuz how they shed such a clear light on like how it really works and it's like, man, all this is going on right mm-hmm. now like in my head, in this person, in everyone's <laughs> head around us. Holy cow. And she'll mention like or they'll mention like certain things, right, where you re- it reminds you that hey, I didn't really think about this. Where like going out, going outside, right? Mm-hmm. I think actually you said it. Go um get outside. And not just outside the building. I mean, I think anyway, outside and talk to people, talk to different people, be around different people. Because, you know, now a lot of my work, quote unquote, work is inside (laughs) in front of the computer for long periods of time. So then I remember not recently, but this is like years ago where I remember not going outside for a few days, like not going outside of the building in a few days. That's not healthy. Yeah. And you can feel it, too. Like after a while, when you kind of are in touch with it, like you can feel it. Or not used, not or being not used to being around people. When okay, I used to work in night club, where you're around people mm. all the time, mm-hmm. all different dynamic <laughs> spectrum of people all the time, positive, negative, everybody. Um, and then you know, working inside where you're not a lot, uh, around a lot of people. Like I can totally tell the difference. Like the idea of me, and this might have to do with age too, by the way, but. The idea of going down and dealing with the crowd of a nightclub or something doesn't appeal your on to you right any now. night mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. that is one of the last things I'd, <laughs> I'd want to do. And I want to compare it, especially when I compare it to like how I was kind of down with that long time ago, you know. And so you take that idea and do it and just apply it to everyday life. I know nightclub and all that stuff is different, a little bit different. But in everyday life, if you're used to going out to the store or going out to this and that and then you don't go outside for a long time or you just just simply al- alone you just don't go outside for a long time starting to go outside and dealing with like people or the public becomes more and more challenging just because you're not used to it just like any kind of exercise you do see what i'm saying mm-hmm. and it, i can understand even more now how that
0: how, window shuts
4: yeah and how that can jam you up yeah. mentally yeah it doesn't seem like you're made for that kind of stuff, you know, Whew. just being isolated.
0: Well, and then you're stuck with the internet all the time. Oh, God man, brother, uh, brother, you got to watch yeah, out. You see, the internet conversation could be a five-hour conversation. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's mayhem out there on the internet. And if you have that little belief, I mean, look, if you believe that uh, uh, v- veganism is the best thing for you, that you can go insane. If you believe that the carnivore diet is about you can go insane. If you believe like whatever l- weird belief that you want to have yeah. and you want to jump on the internet and you want to read into that thing, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> you got to watch it's true, out. It's you got to watch out, man. Put it's that true. put that don't get off that internet, man. It's yep. going to jack you up. Oh well, yeah. And the weird thing is when I tell you if I'm like echo dude you got to get off the internet. You got to stop reading about uh you know carnivore diet. You yeah. be like oh you just want me to keep eating the mainstream diet and yeah. want me to <laughs> It's like that that's you G- see? It's you like know? it's like a oh, yeah. self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh yeah. So you got to get yourself out of the algorithm. Just watch out. True. Uh hey, that being said, one thing that we did talk about today was being healthy. Yeah. Eating the right foods, working out, this is coming from two people in the industry for a quarter se- well between them it's probably I don't know 50 years or something like they got yeah. a lot of experience in this industry. Yeah. And I made kind of made fun of Rogan and me saying like oh you should work out. Yeah. I kind of made fun of it and they're like actually it's true. Yeah. Work out, eat right, stay on the path. It's going to help you in everything that you do. So, mm-hmm. get yourself some good let's say supplementation.
4: Yes. To help with that workout yeah. and that's the thing actually you're probably in this boat too where you segue
0: just occurred you're welcome everybody <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, the perfect chance but you probably like this too, where you pretty much worked out your whole life probably
0: right yeah, yeah uh, I really didn't start legitimately working out until I was like first of all because working out wasn't really a thing I mean it really wasn't like w- there was no I'm what am I five years older than you yeah six, so like yes six, did six we years. did we did we have a uh, Joe Weeder's super weight gain back in, like, 1985? Yes, we did. Yeah. But we didn't understand, at least where I was. I mean, look, maybe if I'd have been at uh, some bigger school, because I was in, like, a little school. Like, there was a YMCA, and there was a, there was bumper plates in there. Yeah. But, like, I had no idea what. I remember there was a blind guy mm. that would Olympic lift. Day. And I actually thought at the time it was because, like that was what he was limited to, uh, yeah. I thought, well, you know he can't really see, so he just stays in this one spot and just lifts that one bar. Yeah. He doesn't know how to use the freaking peck deck, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying, so yes i I guess i I have been working out for a while, yeah,,
4: uh, so we and so you weren't like a jock, no jock but you just,
0: i I definitely was not like a jock, although I played um soccer and basketball every you know? year, yep.
4: Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. So, you, to me, that is working out. So, especially if you took it even this much seriously. So, mm-hmm. consider, and I'll use myself as an example. So, when I was 11 years old, I started actual sports. Mm-hmm. So, you play football. But you got you into know,
0: push-ups, right? I remember you.
4: Push-ups. And yeah. so, I always thought that having big muscles was cool. Yes. So, <laughs> so I would do that kind of stuff. Yes, for sure. And then when you reach puberty, f- 13, 14, probably like 15 years old, we started lifting weights. So, man, from there, it was on. It was all one big program indefinitely. Till now. uh, Till literally right now today. Till this morning. Yes, sir. Yes. So, and this is how it works. Essentially, if you care about sports, care about your performance in sports, which we did. So, you go on season. Obviously, you're practicing every day. Football and track. That's what we did. So, football is one season. Once football's over, get ready for track. Between that set, you're lifting weights. So, yeah, you're just going from one sport to yep. Lifting and conditioning to the next sport, lifting and conditioning, and back and forth years through college, um, and then after college it was just lifting. Mm-hmm. And then when I got into jujitsu, okay, now it's lifting and conditioning for jujitsu tournaments, all this stuff. So essentially, being on the program on the path on the, from a physical standpoint is been has a long been
0: time. decades.
4: Yeah, but as, as a result, it's it has served as like an anchor. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of like not working out not a thing like, oh, he just quit working out like, bro, I, man, it's hard to relate even though it's so common. So, yeah, I think if you can anchor that, the workout, yep. like my physical health is like an anchor, a and, given.
0: And it should be because if your physical health falls apart, like it's going to negatively impact everything else. That's now, look, true. you can get sick and you, guess what? When you do get sick, if you get sick, it is still going to negatively impact everything else. Yeah. But There's sicknesses you don't have an option on, right? Like you get hit with some horrible cancer out of nowhere. Like, what? What are you gonna do about that? Well, you, you know, you go through the protocol. You try and stay positive. But a lot of people, they don't get hit with something they can't control. They hit hit with the one thing they can control. Yeah. And they let it slide, which is freaking horrible to see.
4: Yeah.
0: Uh. So let's not let it slide. Yeah. Get on there. Um.
4: And yeah, take your supplements. That Mm -hmm. helps it. That helps the physical part. So I'm saying these good, so functional. This is the line of supplements I wish I always had.
0: Yeah, that could have been on. a game changer actually. If, yes. if, if we would have had these supplements our whole lives, yeah, be a whole different story. I'm gonna go down.
4: Let's face it, we navigate our supplement um experience very <laughs> ignorantly. You oh, know, God. We, we, the best advertisement wins straight up. Yeah. Like, hey, you see a buff guy on there saying freaking 100 grams of protein, Do you per see scoop? a guy that's
0: freaking juiced to the absolute yep.
4: gills. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, you know, so that's that's what we're going to get. And he's like, yeah, I take freaking whatever.
0: <laughs> and they come up with these crazy names.
4: Mega Mass. F- I forget the number. I think it was, was 5,000. <laughs> Mega, Bro, that tasted kind of good. It was in a big dog Super food Super weight gain
0: Mega Mass 5,000. Like, yeah. just get some.
4: Oh, yeah. And that's. But so, yeah. Now we know, bro, it's not like that. You got to take the correct stuff mm. made with the correct stuff yeah, for incredible. the correct stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, we're doing that. we got joint stuff. Uh, Malk, which is the protein. That's the so protein good. we should have had yeah, back in the day. So good. Not this yeah. mega sugar, 1 million or whatever it was before. Um, the energy drinks, Jocko Go. Yeah. The first health. Well, maybe not the first. I don't know. No, I have no idea. The first. Fully healthy energy drink. Yes. Yeah. The kind you drink one, you're healthier. You're healthier. Yes.
0: You just got better. You just got that. You know, like, oh, if good health came in a can, everyone would say, "Well, it does." Mm-hmm. There you go.
4: It Boom. does. Well, one third of it. See, what I'm saying. One third. Nutrition, exercise, rest. That's the the trio. Oh, look at right? you over so, there. Well, I Don't to throw that rest
0: at him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, JockoFuel.com. You can get all this good, good stuff for you. You can support the podcast. You can support yourself. You can be healthy. You can help your you can help your mental health. Right. We just did a freaking three hours on mental health. Help your mental health by helping your physical health. You can get the drinks at Wawa. We got uh, October 3rd I think the Moke RTD hits Wawa. Right. Get in there. Get yourself some banana, get yourself some chocolate, get yourself some some vanilla the best you can get. The best the best the highest quality. Look, we are not cutting corners. And believe me, people want want you to cut corners. Yeah. They want to make an extra 7 cents. Oh, yeah. No. We we could get an extra 7 cents out of every sale.
4: Per unit
0: yeah if you put if you don't use a natural sweetener yeah. if you use something that's bad for you cool i made more money off your health no we're not doing that yeah. we are keeping healthy Jogglefuel.com, wawa vitamin shop uh heb down in texas bunch of different places if they don't have it where you shop ask them for it we'll get it to you um originusa.com we're doing jujitsu which means you need a gi. You might as well get the best possible gi in the world. Go to originusa.com, get yourself uh, the best made gi. And it's made in America, just like the jeans, just like the just like the boots. Awesome stuff, the hunt gear, originusa.com. Don't forget that we, don't we have a store? We do have a store. And what's that called? It's
4: called Jocko store. Ah. Again, the discipline equals freedom standard issue T-shirt is out. We made the announcement. Mm-hmm. Made it yesterday to the people, and you know, good response. It's a good. It's a good standard <laughs> yeah, I issue. You, I shirt. I saw you
0: put a, a YouTube video up of the shirt locker.
4: Yeah, kind of updated. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, is it an updated one? A little bit, yeah. It's pretty cool.
4: Yes. Quite frankly. Yeah it's it's a metaphorical uh it's a metaphorical uh, it's a metaphor for for what the shirt locker.
0: Oh, because my shirt's changing?
4: Yeah. You know, people, I read the comments. That's not the deepest metaphor. I (laughs) I read some of the comments. They're like, oh, how do you make a shirt change when you didn't even take it off or whatever? See what I'm saying? So I'm saying, hey, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. You wear a shirt, it changes every month. Boom. It doesn't really change on your body the way it does in the videos. See what I'm saying?
0: You're wearing one of these shirt locker shirts right now. Is that Uh not? Yes.
4: Yeah. It is. The G.I. Joe one G.I. Yeah. Joe rip most recent one is called toxic productivity <laughs> it's
0: a good one <laughs>
4: it's a good one very good I,
0: these cartoonish pictures that you're utilizing of me yep by the way yep cartoonish pictures of me comic book comic book pictures sure. of me like yeah. holding a weapon in each hand yep. riding a tank yep <laughs> Yep. Uh, that's funny stuff. Yeah. So yeah,
4: there's yeah. A, there's actually a lot of good designs on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. They come up uh, for uh, sometimes people request certain types of designs. We go down a rabbit hole looking into it. You know, the viability of certain ones, and some of them is just real obvious that just need to be made into shirts. <laughs> so. You know, but it's fun. Anyway, that's called the Shirt Locker. One shirt, a uh, new shirt every month. Um, Cool thing. People seem to like it. Check that out. It's all on Jocko store.
0: Uh .com. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget about jockounderground.com. People getting canceled. Yeah, People getting pulled off of platforms. We, we don't own this platform. Look, are we talking about some crazy controversial thing? Not really. Do we talk about some things that maybe could get us put in a situation? Yes, we do. We have. We've had warnings on some of our YouTube videos. Yep. That they had to get fact checked. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. that's an indicator that, you know, maybe we're getting looked at. Well, obviously we are getting looked at. Yep. So to combat that, to make sure that we always have uh, the ability to get information, you have Jocko Underground, jockounderground.com. We do an extra little podcast, we put it on there, to answer your questions. Uh, jockounderground.com. If you want to support there, go support. We appreciate it. If you can't afford it, it's $8.18 a month. What do they say? Like, less than a cup of coffee. Was that what they say? Yeah, sometimes. Some, when it is. Like, about things? Yeah. I don't well, know. if you have a cup of coffee every day yeah. and you're buying it from one of the like more well known coffee shops, you're definitely spending more than $8.18. Well, oh, well,
4: yeah, monthly, even if you're having the most, unless you're not drinking coffee at all, you're spending more than $8.18. $8, even, even if you are going to the grocery store, getting, yeah, you're going to spend maybe eight bucks, maybe.
0: So, coffee pretty cheap. You can get it. If you can't afford it, we still want you in the game, we still wanna be able to talk to you in case things go sideways. Assistance, email assistance at com. We have a YouTube channel, check that out. We have psychological warfare. People have that on their playlist on iTunes. Yeah. It's, it's an MP3 that you can just, if you're going through life, you might experience a little moment of weakness. Yep. This will get you, help get you through it. FlipsideCanvas.com, Dakota Myers Company. gets cool stuff to hang on your wall, which is nice. Keep you on the path. I've written a bunch of books. You can check out those books at some point if you're interested about the things we do here. Uh, Echelon Front Leadership Consultancy. Go to echelonfront.com if you need help in your organization. We can help you. We can help you through leadership. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details on that. We also have an online training academy. I mentioned that a couple times today where we teach leadership. Now look, leadership, it doesn't mean that you're the CEO or you're the COO or you're the commanding officer. There's leadership no matter where you are in an organization, even if you're the frontline individual contributor or the frontline assaulter on a team, you are still in a leadership position. You're leading your teammates, you're actually leading your boss, you're leading your family, you're leading your friends. Become a better leader and you'll have a better life. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com. Join the academy. And if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to AmericasMightyWarriors.org. Don't forget about also Micah Fink's organization, HeroesAndHorses.org. Also check out Marcus and Amber Capone. They've got VetSolutions.org. Check out some of those charities, and if you want to connect, once again, if you want to connect with a new treatment center, a n e w treatment center, go to a new They're on social as well. A new treatment center on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram. They're there. And as for us, we're also in those places. Echo is that Echo Charles? I am at Jocko Willink. Of course, be wary. Be wary of that, that algorithm. And uh, thanks once again to Megan and Carlin for joining us today to share their knowledge with us, to try and educate me. And thanks to both them for dedicating their lives to helping other people. Also, thanks to all our service men and women out there around the globe that are standing Watch Against Evil, and a big thanks to our police and law enforcement, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, firefighters, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all the first responders. Thank you for protecting us from evil here at home. And everyone else out there, pay attention. Pay attention to that mental check engine light. Pay attention to your own. Pay attention to the people around you. And if that check engine light comes on, don't just keep driving. Pull over for a minute. Call that mind mechanic. Call that therapist or that psychologist who can help get your mind back up and running the way it's supposed to. So that you can go out and get after it. And until next time, the Echo and Jocko out.